3: Well, 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 here we are, the start of a brand new week. It's Monday already. I love it. Um, Mondays, to me, have always gotten kind of a bad reputation. Uh, Nobody likes Mondays. I like them. I always find Mondays to offer, one, ideally you should be at least somewhat well-rested from the weekend. Kind of, um, if you were a human... That, that was masquerading as a mobile phone. You've just been left in your charger all night and you're all sorts of ready to go on Twitter and WhatsApp and SMS text message people. But also, I always sort of set out the week with a list of things that I want to accomplish. And on Monday, everything is possible. It's the beginning of the week and the world is your oyster, essentially. Uh, A lot of people taking off this week. I don't think. I think we're on just about every day this week. I'm not sure about Friday, but uh, I'm looking forward to being on. uh, Yeah, I think we are on Friday. Uh, Matt Blaze, what's your deal? Are you here all week?
4: I'm here all week. Are you here all week?
3: I think so. Yeah. The only (laughs) day that we might be off is is Friday, but I think we're. I I I I can't remember what days I put in for. I think it might just be the 29th and the 30th. So I I think I am here all week.
4: Yeah, I know I'm here all week, not next week. Not next week, right? No. Okay. As far as I know, but yeah, well, things could change.
3: That's that's certainly true. They certainly can. All right. Uh, and Kenneth is back. This is a rare treat to have Kenneth uh, back at work. Welcome back, Kenneth. Hello, Mr. Frank. W- what were you doing on uh, Friday? I was uh, just chilling. Mm-hmm. Just chilling. All right. Um, you know, it's funny. My um, I am a guy that likes the pop-in, and I love it when – People stop over my house, and uh you know, my wife absolutely hates it, absolutely cannot stand uh, when anybody just comes <laughs> comes over. But one of the people that she can tolerate more than most is my uncle Steve. Now you, you know the old joke about um hell and heaven, right, and um, there's a guy who is given an opportunity, he dies. And he's given an opportunity to go to heaven or hell. But the person that's guiding him, I don't know if it was an angel or whatever the case may be, he takes him up to heaven. And it's great. It's, no, it's not great. It's pretty good. There's a lot of, uh, you know, nice music playing. There's a lot of clouds. There's people wearing white flowing robes. There's a lot of people with beards, a lot of people floating on crowds, a lot of harps, right? and It's pleasant pleasant enough. It smells of sort of lilac when you get up there. And then they take him down to hell. And sure enough, hell is tremendous. It's fun. There's all sorts of uh, amusement parks. There's junk food. There's gambling. There's drinks. It's one big, long party. There's cute girls. It's It's a lavish... Good time. There's no fire. There's no brimstone. There's no uh, no people with uh, with pokers poking at you. There's no eternal damnation. It looks like a great time. So this fellow says to his guide, he says, he, when it comes time to make his decision, he says, "Well, you may not believe this, but I'm actually I'm actually going to have to. I never thought I'd say this, but I'm actually going to have to pick hell. This is kind of more my speed." So he says, "All right." You know, it's uh, it's your your decision. Fine. So the guy goes to hell the next minute. And then all of a sudden, the next day, hell is horrible. Everybody is being tortured. It's very, very hot. There's uh, everybody essentially pushing boulders up mountains to nowhere. People are being tortured. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. There's no party. And the guy says to one of the demons down there that looks like he has some influence of what's going on. And he says to the demon, hey, what's going on? What happened to this scene that I saw yesterday? And uh, and this is really a joke politicians tell with one another. And so the demon tells him, well, you got to understand, yesterday we were campaigning. And today, this is kind of just how it is. (laughs) And um, that is how my Uncle Steve is right now. Because my Uncle Steve is, he's preparing to marry uh, his fiancé, and she doesn't like his cats, right? And he is desperate For us to take at least one of his cats. So he's been just super nice, super generous. He came over to drop off some vintage Dr. Seuss books. And uh, he's just been over the moon. He's always nice, always generous. But he's been over the top generous with us as of late. And he brought over his report card from the fifth grade. And ironically, I knew his fifth grade teacher. He just passed away, unfortunately. But I didn't know that this was his teacher. But I'm looking at the comments that this teacher made on my uncle's fifth grade report card. And you know what he said twice in two different marking periods? He said in words or substance, I don't have it in front of me. I should have taken an image. He said, Steve needs to watch his weight. And he said, be careful with the kind of food Steve is eating. This could very easily turn into a weight problem. And I was struck by a couple of things. One, I was thinking... You really couldn't do that today as a teacher, as a teacher in a public school, especially. You really couldn't tell a a student on on his report card, watch your way. And I'm starting to think to myself, is that good? Is that bad? Well, look, I mean, you don't want to hurt a student's feelings. You don't want to upset parents. I guess it's probably a good thing. And then I read the Sunday New York Post where apparently there is one public school, at least in New York, Where this still goes on, Deborah Mastriano, in a New York Post exclusive, is the principal of PS 166 on the Upper West Side. But if you're listening outside the New York area, this is really a subject that I think the whole country is dealing with. She once forbade a kindergartner, this is the principal, from eating a piece of birthday cake from his home-packed lunch because she thought he was overweight. This is according to a letter written by 64 fed-up parents. Not one or two, 64 parents wrote a letter complaining about this principal. What else does this principal do? So uh, the principal, who herself is fairly tall and slender, she has very little tolerance for snacks in general, sometimes prohibiting students from eating treats in their lunchboxes and even confiscating Department of Education sanctioned chips from the cafeteria and hiding them away. One educator is quoted in uh, the New York Post as saying it was just so Grinch-like. This is apparently a pattern for this principal, Miss Ma- Ms. Mastriano. In another, what they call snack attack, the principal was photographed standing over a student in the lunchroom and directing him to forego a donut he brought from home. And after ordering a first grader to lay off her candy bar, the principal was confronted at an October staff meeting. She defended her action, saying it was one time, and that she wanted them to be healthy, and wanted them to have a good day. It was one child, one time, according to notes from the meeting. Now, it certainly seems uh, like this is a pattern. And according to the parents letter which was written to the district superintendent this is a pattern the principal has a big problem with junk food and parents are upset about it and here's my question for you does the principal have a point are the parents right to be upset or does the principal have a point there's no allegation that the principal was ridiculing anyone there's no allegation that the principal was walking around calling students fat. It seems like the extent of this principal's Grinch-like behavior is not wanting elementary school, st- school students to eat junk food, not wanting them to eat cake and potato chips and so forth. And I have to tell you, I, I don't know if anyone has noticed this, but we have a tremendous problem with childhood obesity in this country. We are at alarming and record levels of childhood obesity. And uh, look, I I always hate talking about this subject because I could stand to lose more than a few pounds. So, um, you know, whenever I make comments about this subject, people always comment, especially on social media where the real brainiacs among us gather to comment on world affairs. And they say, "Oh, who is this guy uh, to comment on anything having to do with weight when he's so overweight?" Whatever. Okay, let's acknowledge the fact that I'm overweight. But um, children being overweight is, in the long term, a much bigger problem not only for themselves but for society. And in the auspices of not wanting children bullied, we have conditioned parents, educator, other young, other children to. except being overweight. And that's good. People should always accept who they are. But what's not good is this principle has become the bad guy because the principle is telling children they shouldn't eat junk food. You know what? They shouldn't eat junk food. I read this article and I read this letter and I read the allegations against this principle, and if she is hiding potato chips away... And telling children not to eat donuts and not to eat birthday cake? You know what I say? Good for her. Good for her. I wish these parents that are giving their children donuts and birthday cake to take to school on a daily basis and okay with them eating potato chips. They say they're sanctioned by the DOE. Who cares? Who cares if a potato chip is sanctioned by the DOE? I wish these parents would learn a thing or two from the principal and say, well, wait a minute. Why is the principal taking birthday cake away uh, from my child? Now, look, I'm not uh, I'm I'm not against a student having a birthday party in school and bringing the cupcakes or something. That's once a year. But if this is a routine situation and it seems like that's the case and it's not just in this school, it's in every school in America where we have, in some cases, turned a blind eye and in other cases encouraged. Children gobbling down junk food, I think this is an important conversation to have. And I hope this principal doesn't lose her job over this. And I hope, more important, that the next principal, who might be trying to give uh, guidance to their students about what foods to eat and what foods to avoid, I hope the next principal doesn't say to themselves, whoa, whoa, I don't want to end up on the front page of the Sunday New York Post like, Ms. Mastriano, I'm just not going to say anything. That would be a real shame. Because if you look at what childhood obesity is leading to, we are seeing alarming and record rates of diabetes among children. We are seeing all sorts of lifestyle problems follow these children from uh, childhood to adolescence to adulthood. It's leading to soaring health care costs. And this is not something that's good for anybody Certainly not for the country, and uh, I don 't think this principle is a grinch. I don 't think this principle is being fairly represented here. I don't think this principle should be villainized, and I say if she 's keeping kids from eating junk food, good for her. I think we want principles, I think we want teachers to be leaders, to set an example and to offer guidance. Two children, yes, that should include about a healthy and balanced diet. I want to repeat, there's no allegation that any of these students were ridiculed. There's no allegation that any of these students were abused. No allegation that this principal put her hand on any student, uh, used profane language or anything like that. All she did was try to stop them from eating junk food, and she is being treated literally like the grinch. What say you? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. that's eight hundred eight four eight nine two, two two. Let me begin with Loretta in Brooklyn. Hello, Loretta.
5: Hi. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Morning. <laughs> um, I don't know if you remember, I told you I lost 150 pounds. I
3: remember. That's great. Good for you. That's uh, inspirational. Okay.
5: Right. Um, in, in later life, of course, um, I ballooned up to 300 pounds. But you come from Staten Island, right? Yes. I went to St. Joseph's Hill. And when I was uh, 15, I was a sophomore, and Sister Kathleen was a very heavy nun. And they looked like little penguins back then. And um, I was um, short. I'm still short, even shorter now, old age shrinks you. Um, I was short and dumpy, short and fat, whatever. And uh, she didn't ridicule me or take any food away from me. She wanted me to write down on a piece of paper what I'm eating, the times I'm eating, and the amounts I'm eating. So the next day or whenever it was, I showed her what I wrote down. And you would see nothing all day long. And then 4 p.m., hot fudge Mm.
3: sundae.
5: Uh-huh. And that's still me. Uh, I prefer You're still eating
3: hot fudge sundays. no meals until 4 p.m.?
5: No, no, no. Uh, my brain still wants the sweets over a meal. But no, I don't do that anymore. I want to keep walking.
3: That's great. So what do you think about what this principal did here, Loretta?
5: Um, I think it's good she's tall and thin. You can't help your height, but you can do something about your weight if you want to.
3: Right, but I'm talking about her the what she's doing with the students here.
5: Well, um I I respectfully disagree with you. I think she's over. I (laughs) sorry about that, pal. (laughs) But I lived it, you know. uh, And and my view is she's overstepping. What she should do to be an what I think she should do to be an involved principal with her students when she cares. As Sister Kathleen cared about me, she should talk to the parents, guide them, not the children. Well, that's
3: fair. That's that's fair, Loretta. Thank you. I appreciate that. So um evidently I'm in the minority on this one because the parents agree with Loretta. The New York Post, uh, given the editorial bent of the way they position the story on the front page with the nasty headline, they seem to agree with Loretta. And uh, look, the parents' letter to the district superintendent details what they call a a pattern of toxicity and called her unfit to lead the school. Really unfit to lead the school because she doesn't like the kids eating junk food. She's unfit to lead. Come on parents and teach. You you could only do this on the Upper West side, right? Where you you know, if you're familiar with what it takes to get into a Manhattan public school and the kind of parents that have children going to a, a public school on the Upper West side, if this was happening in the Bronx or uh, Brooklyn, unless it was Park Slope or something, or, uh, you know, the North Shore of Staten Island, this would not even be an issue. And I suspect in most ca- schools around the country, parents would just deal. It, there's a certain type of, oh, how dare you speak to my Wilford like that, with the kind of parents that um, end up sending their children to school on the Upper West Side. I I think that's what a lot of this is here. These parents don't like to be told or even inferred that they're doing an inadequate job. And if you're giving your children donuts on a regular basis, yes, that is not appropriate. So parents and teachers, they issued a vote of no confidence against Mastriano with 28 educators and more than 73 current and former parents voting against her. Let me ask, by the way, why are former parents voting on this? Why, why, why do former parents have any say into what goes on at a school and in terms of who the principal is? And at what point do the former parents relinquish say? I, I haven't been to uh, PS3 in decades. Does my mom still get to vote on what's going on in her level of confidence with the principal? I think that's a joke. That the, It looks to me like they essentially recruited an anti-Mastriano pro-junk food hit squad to vote on this. 18 staffers abstained from the vote. None voted to support her. I would guess that the reason none voted to support her is because I don't think it was a secret ballot. I don't know that, but it doesn't say that in any of the articles here. And I think the 18 that were abstaining, they didn't want to be seen as defending this junk food Grinch. Um, They say... That she's instituted some bizarre punishments, including making children stand to eat lunch last year if they talked in the cafeteria. Making students stand to eat lunch. My goodness. Somebody call Child Protective Services. You know what I had to do when I was when I was caught talking in the cafeteria when I wasn't supposed to be? I had to stay after school for detention and along with another student that got in trouble for something and scrape. The gum off of every cafeteria table in the lunchroom. Okay, that's what I. I would much rather have stood and eaten lunch instead of scraping the gum off of the underbelly of those uh, of those tables. She um she's had children walk in circles outside during recess, and according to that's according to one parent, teachers said that Mastriano micromanages them, tearing down bull bo- bu- bulletin boards she doesn't like directing what color paper students can use and even issuing an edict banning pencils because she doesn't want children to erase mistakes. Instead, they have to use markers. I have to tell you, I love this woman. (laughs) I think this woman is my kind of crazy. She's my kind of quirky. She micromanages. Okay, people have to deal. You know what this is? This is teachers not liking somebody watching what they're doing, not liking being a little micromanager. I'm not a micromanager. I'm not really a manager at all. Uh, but if I were to manage anything, my attitude is, all right, you do your own thing. You find the best people. Let them do their thing and not micromanage them. But a lot of people are micromanagers. And I think they're using this junk food situation as an opportunity to get rid of her. 800-848-9222. John is in East Chester. Hello, John.
6: Hey, how you doing, Frank? Good morning.
3: Doing great, Thanks.
6: I got to tell you that I agree with you, and I disagree with you. I am kind of in between.
3: Multiple personality I disorder.
6: Mostly, yeah. I feel as though that you're correct. The children should be, you know, eating healthy and, you know, doing the right things. And I believe she has the right intentions. But also I believe that these kids go to school to learn, not to get a lecture on their their food habits. You know that's something that the parents should be teaching them. You know to eat in moderation or to eat healthier. Um, John, that's a fair point.
3: By the way, did um, Kenneth, the newly returning Kenneth, did he tell you to turn your radio off before getting on the air?
6: No, he didn't. He did. I'm sorry.
3: Interesting. No, 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 no. It's not your fault. Believe me, it's it's our <laughs> fault, and it's and it's Kenneth's fault. Uh, we had no problems with that when Ryan was here on Friday. But um uh, so you think that the this the, every, given what you said the, and by the way no one's telling these children they can't eat donuts or cake or potato chips at home it's just at school. Do you think that this teacher should lose her job as the 64 signatories to this letter seem to desire?
6: No, I, I don't think she should lose her job. Like I said, I think she has good intentions as And she cares about the students as per, you know, all principals and teachers do. And I believe, you know, that she she has the right intentions. And I don't think she should lose her job, but I think that this is a subject that could be handled in a much different way.
3: Thank you, John. I appreciate that. I'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800 848 9222. There's two open lines if you want to jump on board. Eric, Michael, Fugazi, Tom, Gary, Gina, Phil. We'll try and get to as many of you as we can straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Frank Morano.
3: Frank Moreno, uh, this is Weird Al Yankovic. By the way, Weird Al is one of my all-time favorites. Not people because he's so funny, forget what a skilled musician he is. But honestly, listen to his singing, listen to his lyrics. It, the guy is a brilliant writer and a brilliant musician. Honestly, and he's hysterical. I was just listening to Weird Al the other day. He's got this new movie out. I think it's just called Weird, and um, with it's supposedly a biopic with. Daniel uh, Radcliffe uh, as Weird Al Yankovic. It's a little controversial because it's it's fake. It's inaccurate. But I don't care. I'm not watching a film in the hopes of, you know, passing a, a, a test about the accuracy of things that occurred in Weird Al's life. I haven't seen the film yet, by the way. Um, maybe we'll check in with Debbie Schlossel again on Friday. We'll see if we'll assign that to her as homework. See if she has uh, seen it. Are you a Weird Al fan in that place? You are. Yeah, I actually saw him once. Oh, you didn't see this picture, though?
4: No, I didn't see the movie. It looks pretty good because I saw a clip of it, and there's like a part with him and Madonna. Mm, And whoever plays Madonna looks exactly like Madonna from that time period. But who cares if Weird Al is like imagining his own life?
3: Right, so you're not bothered by the (laughs) inaccuracies. No, not at all. Okay. I think it's kind of fun. Yeah, uh, the headline on NBC News uh, a month ago was Roku movie. It's on Roku. Weird about Weird Al Yankovic is fake, funny, and meta. You know, I'm a little over people using the term meta as an adjective for everything, but whatever. That's the it's the world we're living in apparently. Uh, but uh, I'm I'm going to check that out. You know, if m- my wife, if uh, you're listening, maybe we could put that on our list. The next time we get to watch a motion picture, maybe we could throw weird on there because I am a weird Al Yankovic fan. Speaking of my wife, I'll tell you, we can't catch a break in our, our household. Last weekend, meaning not the weekend that we just experienced. Last weekend, I had a full weekend full of plans. And... And those were all, you know, that none of them came to fruition because my son came down with the flu. We'd be giving him Tamiflu all week, and lo and behold, Carmine is back to normal. And then the other shoe just drops. Friday, I was really excited to go to my friend Arthur Idala's Christmas party. Now, this is my kind of party. One, because, you know, I'm friends with a lot of the people that were going, not just Arthur and – people at his firm, but, you know, a lot of other people. It was really a fun group of people. But then um, I don't have to work that night. So I get to really, you know, let loose. I get to really have a few. I don't have to work the next day. So I could really, you know, indulge in frivolity. Then, uh, you know, I looked like I was going to have to go solo to this, because my my wife said that even though Carmine was feeling better, you're still contagious as a child for up to seven days. So we canceled our babysitter. She was going to come with me. Then Friday comes around, Friday afternoon, and my wife starts feeling crummy, uh, headache, sore throat, congested, fever, really feeling crummy. And then uh, so obviously I canceled my plans to go. And she is just getting worse, worse and worse. We're giving her Tylenol, giving her fever reducer. Her fever makes it up to 103 degrees. So uh, obviously no big deal to skip a Christmas party. I hate – oh, by the way, not only is this my kind of party, but you know how I enjoy being the center of attention. The band that was going to be performing, Rapid Pulse, I was going to introduce them. And you know if there's one thing I like to do, as you could tell from my 15-minute introductions of guests, I like to introduce people, right? I'd much rather introduce people than talk to them, right? So I had a very, very humorous introduction planned for Rapid Pulse. But um, because, obviously, I was looking forward to going to this party so much, I didn't get to go. So that's that. Then um, she is really under the weather. So we obviously just assume that she's got the flu. So I'm trying to take care of Carmine. I'm trying to take care of Rachel. And we're all just under the operating assumption that she's got the flu. Uh, She's taking fever reducers. She's taking Dayquil, NyQuil, whatever, you know, standard cold medication. And she would go from being um, super hot, right? Like the the old cliche goes when you have a fever, to almost freezing. And, uh, you know, you try and manage the situation as best you can. She couldn't swallow. She's having a tough time. So the next day, so we all assume that she's got the flu, and we both had the flu shot. So Rachel's complaining to me, what good is this flu shot if you still get the flu? And I said, well, you know, they guess at the certain strain that they get. They don't always get it right. So the next day, she wants to go get some Tamiflu for herself. But the first thing you have to do before they can give you Tamiflu usually is take a test for the flu. So she goes to the local clinic, and she takes a test, takes a flu test. She doesn't have the flu what does she have? Well, they're examining her, and um, they think that she has strep throat. So they give her some antibiotics. They give her a strep test. We haven't gotten the results from that strep test yet, but probably today. They have to send it out to a lab. But they give her some... Um, antibiotics and she's been taking and she's starting to feel better, but she still has a uh, sore throat, no fever anymore, thankfully. But that was our whole weekend. I uh, was going to, you know, Sunday, I was invited to, uh, you know, a couple of great parties, missed those. And they had the tree lighting ceremony in our neighborhood. We missed that. So basically we were home the whole weekend and uh, we just, you know, we're, we're taking care of Carmine, taking care of Rachel and, that was pretty much the the whole weekend. So uh, hopefully you did something better than that. And, you know, our attitude was at least we're um, getting all these illnesses out of our system now so that we're all set for Christmas and for New Year's Eve Eve. So uh, that's, that's that. Now, you know who still hasn't gotten sick? This guy. So I said to Dominic before, you better stay away from me. You better stay away from me because, you know, I'm going to get sick. You know, today, tomorrow. So big portion of the weekend, my wife is walking around when she found out she didn't have the flu because she assumed Carmine had it. She couldn't give it back to him. But then when she found out she had probably strap or some throat infection, she's walking around in a mask, cloth mask. And uh, I said, honey, you really walking around her house with a mask? And she says, yeah, I don't want Carmine to get it. I don't want you to get it. I said, one – you haven't seen another person other than Carmine and me all week. Chances are whatever you have you probably got it from me. I probably got it from uh, Alex Barnard or something and um I unknowingly transmitted it to you. So I'm be- and second, I've been around you, you know, all week and all weekend. If I'm going to get whatever you got, chances are pretty good and that I've already gotten it. Second, how much of a protection do you think that cloth mask that you're wearing really is. It's not like you're wearing an N95 mask or even a surgical mask. You're wearing a piece of cloth over your face. She says, yes, but if there's droplets of saliva... And so, again, I'm thinking to myself, why is this going to be the argument that I fight? I mean, uh, m- my wife already gets mad at me for so many things that I legitimately deserve reproachment for. Why should I stoke the flames and <laughs> create an argument over a mask? So that was our weekend. Uh, my wife was wearing a mask, and she was getting that I forget what they call it, I think maskney is the term, but her skin was being irritated from wearing this mask all weekend. So she ch- changed to one of the masks that I have, which lets your face breathe a little bit better. But uh, that's where we are. So hopefully, it, oh, and that means, by the way, today, no babysitter today, because obviously Rachel doesn't want to get the babysitter sick. So it's going to be a very stressful day in the Murano household because we have a babysitter come for three or four hours in the morning. And those three or four hours are essential. Those three or four hours allow Rachel to work and me to sleep. So I think uh, my wife is taking a sick day today. I hope she is because uh, otherwise we're just, we're up the creek without a paddle. All right. We're talking about this uh, story in the New York post of this principal who parents and staff members are trying to, essentially get fired because they say this is a pattern of toxicity. And that pattern involves hiding junk food and taking junk food away from children. The parents are unhappy. The parent, the teachers are unhappy and they had a vote of no confidence. The fact that she has made it to the front page of a New York city tabloid, I don't think looks good for her. Um, Let's look at the job she's actually done as principal. In the last 10, she took over this school in 2012. In that time, test scores have improved. But according to the New York Post, they say morale has plummeted. How does the New York Post know morale has plummeted? I don't know how this article came to be, but clearly someone who is a parent of a student at this school Or a teacher at the school is friends with someone at the New York Post. And that's how this article came to be. They say um, one one departing teacher sent a farewell email to the staff last year saying she hoped you can get out too, meaning the other teachers, because it's just not worth it. Only 14% of teachers said they trusted the principal in the latest school survey compared to the citywide average of 86%. You know, it's funny, I'm all for democracy. Right, I, I, my whole, I don't even know what my political philosophy is. If I'm liberal, if I'm conservative, if I'm independent, if I'm libertarian, whatever, I have no idea what my political philosophy is. If I were to boil down my political philosophy to anything, it's that I believe in democracy. I believe that people should have more power, and that uh, special interests, brown nosing politicians with connections, and other people that aren't. Folks, voters, individuals, should have less power. That being said, as as even though I believe full throttle in democracy, the administration of a school is not a democracy. It, there's a hierarchy. The principal is the boss. And it sounds like this is a tough boss to have. And it sounds like a lot of the teachers have been itching and looking for the last 10 years for a way to get rid of her, and it looks like they might have finally succeeded with this junk food situation. My take is, unless there's something else that's not in this article and not included in this letter, they should not get rid of her because she's tough on junk food. What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me begin with Maria in Monmouth County. Hello, Maria.
7: Oh, hello. I love I love speaking to you and listening to you. Thank You're you. Fabulous. Likewise. OK, Thank you. so. OK, my opinion is she's very neurotic. No wonder a lot of the parents got angry. She's doing all kinds of things that are uh, she's like, oh, you know, uh, she's obsessive compulsive. Mm-hmm. She should not be in that position. OK, I'm sorry to say that. But anyway, what I think is all these children in all these schools should be taught something about nutrition and about the the bad things that come about from sugar and what has sugar in it, stuff like that. They should be taught that. But, But that's as far as really it should go. And as far as your wife, I just had a strep throat. A lot of people have had it. And after that, she will get a cough because everything settled down in the lungs and all. And that's what happens. So she'll have a little trouble with the cough and not to worry because that just happens and she'll get rid of it.
8: Well,
3: thank I you, Maria. Yeah. I appreciate You're I appreciate welcome. that very much. Uh, by the way, there's one report in this, in this New York Post article that if it's true, it's bad, right? And no educator should be saying this. Let me go on record before I tell you what this quote is and say, I don't believe this, right? Just I don't believe it. The letter also alleged that the principal, Miss Mastriano, said that the school was becoming too Asian. I hate Asian people. They're quoting her as saying, I hate Asian people. Let me go on record. There's no way she said that. There's no way. I don't know this woman. I've never spoken to this woman. I'm not basing that in anything. I can tell you there's no way a public school principal uh, in any New York City public school, but especially on the Upper West Side, there's no way that she is is openly saying in earshot of anyone, I hate Asian people. There's no way. There's no way. 800-848-9222. If you hate Asian people, give us a call. Uh, Gina is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gina. Hi,
9: Frank. Hi. Frank, my best friend since I'm a kid is Chinese. I just want to tell you that um, I don't believe my it sympathize.
3: either. Yeah.
9: I don't I don't believe anybody who is intelligent enough to be a high uh, a school principal would say that at all. And something I do know from working in the school system, the Brooklyn parents probably would appreciate that more than the 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 parents up, on the Upper West Side. Oh, and
3: um meaning you think the parents would would appreciate what she's doing yeah, more? Yeah.
9: I, yeah, I think the, the parents feel criticized. I think you're right that there is somebody who knows somebody in the newspaper. And I think that sometimes when you have a standard of excellence and you really care and you go the extra mile, you make yourself a target for criticism. Because although a former caller said that most teachers and principals do really care about the students, I don't agree that most teachers and principals really care about the students. I think when you really care about the students, you are highly criticized by your colleagues, and there are a lot of go-alongs to get along. So she's not well-liked, and she might be, you know, uptight. She might create a little stress for people who want to just relax on the job, but I don't think that uh, she should be losing her job for caring about. And it is is teaching them nutrition.
3: Right, exactly,
4: exactly. It is.
9: And it is part of the school curriculum, and it's a guidance counselor's job, too, to help kids that are overweight and have hygiene problems and all that to bring it to their attention. I think she's a very diligent
3: principal to to be doing this. Yeah, I I tend to agree, Jean. Great call. Uh, Thank you. I agree with everything you said. You know, when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I had a little, tiny little Swiss Army knife. I've always, you know, I I have always pretty much carried a knife of some sort. A small knife, you know. I I couldn't kill anybody with it uh, still to this day. But um, when I was a child, the the knife that I would carry was even smaller. It was basically a nail file. And, you know, one day, um, I think I was in maybe the fourth or fourth, maybe even third grade. I don't know. I was in elementary school. And the teacher saw that I had this Swiss Army knife. And she took it away from me. And again, this is not even a full-size Swiss Army knife. This is a tiny Swiss Army knife. And I didn't get suspended or anything, but she confiscated it and gave it to the principal. And the principal would only give it to me. uh, He wouldn't give it to me. One of my parents had to come down and get the knife back. And I think at the time I thought this was you know, a little excessive. But the principal was right and the teacher was right. Students should not be walking around with knives, even if they're tiny little Swiss Army knives. For the same reason that even though I wasn't using that knife to hurt anyone, that's a lesson that I should know, that a knife is a weapon and you shouldn't be bringing that in school. Junk food is in some cases just as dangerous. I know that it's going to upset people, but it's true. It's true. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, hello there, Eric. Hey,
10: hey. how's it going, Frank? It's going um there. Now, remember a few years, some years back, the Bloomberg thing with the soft drinks. Yes, yes. And, I do. And, so you can't see; it's not the same. Though you can't complain about nanny state because these are kids, and you right. know exactly. um, when you and then when you when I hear pattern of toxicity for doing your job, like your last caller said, uh, one of one of your last calls. That tells me that parents are snowflakes. And, you know, I mean, and, you know, it's just, uh, I, I'm I'm with, sorry, I'm with you on it, basically. You know, it's, it's hardly the Lord's discipline. You know, I had a principal, uh, I had a principal, I think I was in kindergarten, maybe he broke up, he broke a big thing of snow over my head. And I laughed about it because he didn't want people uh snowball fighting right. in the yard. Right. You know? That so was, was like, the
3: thing you know. to do back then. You know, I mean, it, it seems like, you <laughs> right. know, now we've made teachers and principals too afraid to tell children anything yes. about what's yes. right and what's yes. wrong. And I don't think that's appropriate. I want a teacher <laughs> when my son is in school. I want a teacher. I want a principal that um, tell, makes clear that there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. And it's wrong it should be learning. to devour it should be junk be learning
10: food. Too. Yes, yeah.
3: exactly. It should Eric. be learning. I mean, like another of another your last calls. So you
10: have got, you got the smartest callers. So you have the smartest audience. But why isn't that, that? That's learning. You know,
3: she's doing her job. That, that's it. She's a
10: little diligent, but
3: hey,
10: nothing wrong with that. Thank you,
3: Eric. I, I yeah. definitely sure. do uh, appreciate the call. And I second your uh, commentary that we do have the smartest audience and maybe even the smartest callers. And people should not think that the folks that uh, leave their radio on when calling are lacking in intelligence. That's not a reflection on them. That's a reflection on Kenneth. That is all Kenneth. So uh, you notice Eric did not say we have the smartest call screeners. And I think maybe that omission might be accurate. Fine. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Marano. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus, you're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel You're a monster, Mr. Grinch Your heart's an empty hole Your brain is full of spiders You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch I wouldn't touch you with a 39-and-a-half-foot pole.
3: Yes, that's right. The Grinch, a staple of Christmas music, Christmas literature, and of Christmas cinema. Um, even though Dr. Seuss, he, he, he's been canceled, right? Did he Is he canceled or uncanceled? I've, I've lost, I've, I lose track, right? I, I remember liking him more when he got canceled. And I forget what they canceled him for. I think he was uh, running around with a fake medical degree or something. And they tried to take all his books off the shelf. But I, I, we still have Dr. Seuss in our household. In fact, courtesy of my Uncle Steve, we got a bunch of new Dr. Seuss books yesterday. We have, Do- we have a whole Dr. Seuss library, and, uh, including some old ones, which I like. So, as I mentioned, my wife had uh, – she was very feverish on Friday. She was totally out of it. She was on the sofa next to me. Or, you know, I'm in – whatever. You don't need to get into the, the feng shui of how the furniture is set up in our living room. But whatever. We're in the same room. She's on the sofa and she's passed out. She's really in a bad way. Her eyes are closed. This is Friday evening after I put Carmine to bed. She doesn't know what's going on. She's delirious. She's she's, she's in and out of consciousness. And I'm, I'm glad she's getting some rest, getting some sleep. But I'm thinking, hmm – This gives me an opportunity. I I didn't get to go to the Christmas party that I wanted to go to. This gives me an opportunity to watch a motion picture. And because Rachel is uh, right next to me and she's kind of passed out, maybe it gives me an opportunity because usually if I have an opportunity to watch a motion picture, it's something we'll watch together, right? Maybe this gives me an opportunity to watch something that Rachel doesn't like. So let me see what's on. Oh, Taken 2. I never saw Taken 2. And I'm sure it's ridiculous. The first one was kind of ridiculous, but I love that first one, Taken. And I have been waiting for years, over a decade, to see Taken 2. But I love Liam Neeson. I love Liam Neeson and everything. And uh, I said, great, I'm going to put on Taken 2. And I put it on. And it's... um. I think it's 20th Century Fox. So it's one of those films where you see... And you hear the film beginning. And Rachel hears the film's beginning. And she says, what are you watching? What what are you putting on? I said, oh, I'm putting on uh, Taken 2. And she groans. She says, no, no, don't put that on. She doesn't like anything spooky. She doesn't like anything scary. No thrill. I said, all right. She has made it back into consciousness to tell me I can't watch Taken 2. What else is on that I might like to watch? Well... A film that I have been waiting to see for over a year is a film called Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, who you know I like. Uh, And I'm all into – I've spent more time than I think any radio show in America exploring the idea of are we living in a computer simulation. And the premise of this film is Ryan Reynolds' character is a video game character, and he doesn't know he's a video game character. And I'm, uh, I did an interview with a very smart guy about the uh, the about artificial intelligence, and he cited this film. And Debbie Schlussel, who hates everything and finds political subtext to everything, she doesn't hate everything, but she does find political subtext to everything. She even liked this. So I said, "This will scratch my itch for artificial intelligence, and are we living in a computer simulation?" And it's a film that Debbie likes, so it's not going to be too great. Let me put that on. It's light enough. I have to tell you, I. Absolutely loved it. Here's the trailer, if you didn't see it, to Free Guy.
10: Good morning, Goldie.
11: My name is Guy, and I live in Free City. I have everything I need. Except one thing.
8: Hey, hey bud, you ever think that there's got to be more? More than what? The stuff we do day after day. Literally not once. Today's going to be
11: different, Goldie. What are we looking at?
12: who are you we ran into each other the other day how did you find me i waited outside by the murder train
0: guy i have to tell you something there is no easy way to say this this world it's a video game
12: i really want to kiss you is that weird
0: listen to me
5: you're not real
12: wait you let who kiss you guy there's not a button for that oh he found the button Buddy, if we're not real, doesn't that mean that nothing you do matters?
3: I am sitting here with my best friend trying to help him get through a tough time. Now, if that's not real, I don't know what is. Millie, I know this world is just a game, but this place, these people, that's all I have. Thanks,
13: guys.
1: Who is this guy? This character in the video game Free City has been turning heads by being the good guy.
0: Woo! Who is Blue Shirt Guy?
1: You're absolutely right. Who is he or she indeed? This loser
2: is ruining the game, man! I don't care if he's Arnold Freakenschwarzenbader.
14: Terminate him. Uh, we're doing
2: great. In two days, the game is going to shut down. You,
15: this whole city, they'll be gone.
12: What if we can save it?
15: We can change our world, but we have to fight together. I don't even know what's happening right now, but
3: I love it. So I really enjoyed it. I thought this film was clever. I thought it was sweet. I thought it was funny. I thought it was charming. And, you know, uh, some of the reviews I read to see just what other people thought and some and almost everything was was positive, and somebody called it um, frivolous fun i don 't think it 's frivolous because I am increasingly of the belief that we are living in a computer simulation or a video game or something, and I think that this film, even though it 's a little silly at times, it causes you to reexamine a lot of those things in a way that 's a lot more fun and a lot less dark. Than say a film like The Matrix or uh, Ready Player One. I um I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. And uh, if you haven't seen it yet, I do recommend it. I think it's on Disney Plus. Uh, it's called Free Guy, with uh, Ryan Reynolds, who's great in it, and so is the, uh, so are the other actors. It's wonderfully cast. There's some great music in there as well. Jodie Comer is the female lead in it, so I do recommend that if you haven't seen it already. Well done, well done, Ryan. Reynolds. All right, uh, next hour, we're going to talk a wide variety of subjects, some alien news, which is exciting. Until then, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: They're running a strange program, y'all.
1: Now, here's Frank Morano.
3: James Dolan is uh, James Dolan is the owner of a Madison Square Garden, basically. Madison Square Garden. He owns the Knicks. He owns the Rangers. The family used to own uh, Newsday. I don't think they I don't think James Dolan does anymore, but some other Dolan may. But um there was so James Dolan is always involved in some litigation. And um he is uh being sued and that happens when you have a lot of property okay that happens here's what's interesting so keep in mind madison square garden is one of the largest sports and entertainment performance venues in the entire world i don't think that's an exaggeration for me to you know for me to say i have been there many times i've seen Um, basketball games there, hockey games, many wrestling matches, even a concert or two I've gone there for. And uh, now one of the lawyers, actually, let me correct this. All of the lawyers who are suing James Dolan in a case that is annoying him a little bit have been banned from Madison Square Garden. So there was this lawsuit over uh, an injury claim, and three weeks after Madison Square Garden was served with this lawsuit, all of the members of the law firm that's suing James Dolan and Madison Square Garden, they received a letter right back banning them from all of the events— At all of James Dolan's properties, which includes not just Madison Square Garden, but Radio City Music Hall, the Beacon Theater, the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden. And they've done this to attorneys at other firms, including one lawyer who was a Knicks season ticket holder for nearly 50 years. So I'm curious what you think about this, because on the one hand, look, I wouldn't do this. Because, you know, I'm a sucker, and I am one of the least confrontational, least assertive people you will ever meet, right? I have, uh, you know, I've been described as weak need. I've been described as lily-livered. I mean, you get me behind a keyboard, and I can write a fiercely worded email. That's about the extent of my aggression. You know, for instance, I'll give you one – one one example, this gives you an idea of basically of how unconfrontational I am. I'm more of a go along to get along type, right? So I went out yesterday to get my wife some uh, ibuprofen and I drove to the drugstore. I come back from the drugstore and I see a, a girl, looks like a teenager, and her mom, they parked next to, our car, which is was my wife's car, now it's our car. And they're looking at something on the car. I said, well, what are they looking at the car for? And sure enough, they start walking away. And I, they don't know it's my car when I see them looking at them. And I look at the car. It looks like someone sideswiped our vehicle. And there's like red paint on the car. Like someone brushed into it or opened a door on it what color is the car that this lady and presumably her mom just stepped out of? It's red. It looks like this red car just sideswiped our car. And um, I I see this. I look at that car and I do a double take and I say, excuse me, you know, do you know anything about this? Did you accidentally hit our car or something? And she said, no, we didn't. And for well, whatever reason, I found her tone very convincing. So, you know what I said? I said, okay. All right. <laughs> and I moved, went right on. my <laughs> Now, you talk about, I arrive at the murder scene. I arrive at the murder scene and I see somebody holding the knife and there's blood dripping from the knife. And they say, and I said, did you do it? And they say, no. And I said, oh, okay. Oh, and we see sometimes, <laughs> as you know, if you watch only murders in the building. Sometimes that's the case, right? But anyway, so I would not do what James Dolan is doing. But there's a part of me here that applauds what James Dolan is doing because I am tired of seeing lawyers take on cases and then get in an adversarial relationship with their – with someone – and then all of a sudden, they expect everything to be goombaya. They expect everything to be just fine. They expect there's going to be no consequences from their representation of someone that is suing. And, you know, part of me doesn't blame James Dolan from banning all the lawyers that are suing him from all these properties. I'll give you one other personal anecdote in a minute, but I'm curious if you feel the same way. 800-848-9222. Nicolette Landy was going to see Mariah Carey's Christmas show at Madison Square Garden last week. It's called Merry Christmas to All. Uh, I'm sure she plays that horrible song that everybody likes that uh, I think is played way too often. When she was denied entry and asked to leave the premises. Isn't that so funny? I mean, I was explaining this to my neighbor, John Charles, yesterday. And he said, well, how do they know it's her? I mean, let's say someone else bought the ticket. Couldn't someone else just give one of these banned attorneys their ticket to walk in? They must have, these security guards must have a do not admit list, maybe even with people's photographs and things. So anyway, um, she was denied entry and asked to leave the premises. Later, she learned that she made James Dolan's naughty list because she was representing a client who's suing the venue because of an injury she claims she suffered while walking on a garden staircase. So um, this – and this is not a first-time thing. This has happened before. Last month, a Manhattan judge struck down Dolan's ban on musical and theatrical performances at the garden and these other venues if um, lawyers from litigating firms show up with valid tickets. The ban on Knicks and Rangers games remains in place. So as of now, if you have a ticket for a Ranger game, if you're suing James Dolan, you can't go. But if you want to go see a concert there, you can, which makes no sense. I would think either the judge would find everything. is. I haven't read the judge's decision, so I don't know what the rationale was. I'm sure there is a rationale. But I'm just curious what you think about this. Is this James Dolan being a sore loser? Is he being Grinch-like? See, I guess we've got kind of a Grinch theme here going. Or is this appropriate? I have to tell you, I think he's well within his rights to ban the people that are suing him. These are folks who, let's assume James Dolan believes he's right. These are folks who are trying to give James Dolan a tougher time financially, Why should they be able to enjoy his product? You know, I I remember. I'll save you some of the names here because I work with some of these people now. But when Curtis Leiva and I took over the New York State Reform Party, we took it over basically, uh, essentially from the New York Republican Party. And there was one candidate that was. So they were suing us. There was. They were suing us the next over control of this party. You know. And we had to incur all these legal fees because of this. And we were right. The, the folks that were suing us were absolutely wrong. And then these people, the very same people that were suing us, these Republicans, and including some I won't mention, um, they then came to us and asked for our endorsement and wanted to be cross-endorsed by the Reform Party. So I said, whoa, absolutely not. These people are suing us. And they expect to be cross-endorsed? No, 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 no. If they want to be considered for a cross-endorsement, they've got to get these folks to drop this lawsuit. And then it's all, oh, Pontius Pilate, oh, no, we have nothing to do with that. We have no control over this lawsuit. Well, it's not us. Oh, I say, okay, it's not you. Then this is not us, but you're not endorsed. And that was the, that's created some problems for Curtis and me to this day with Republicans in New York State. And you know what? I stand by that. And I think we were right. And I, th- I tend to think James Dolan is right here. You can't sue someone and then exp- and force them to undergo legal fees and all sorts of other things and then expect to be welcomed onto their property. And it seems like that's what these lawyers are expecting. What do you think? We have one, two, three, four open lines. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Even if Kenneth doesn't tell you, please, when you call, make sure your radio's off and get right to your point. I'll tell you so Kenneth doesn't have to. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. By the way, there's still a lot of fallout from this uh, JFK document release that occurred on Thursday. We talked a little bit about it on Friday morning. So I'm going to be joined by Martin K.A. Morgan, who is an author and a historian who specializes in American and military history. We're going to get into these documents a little bit more and some other theories that have uh, developed surrounding the Kennedy assassination. That's coming up next hour. We'll also do... Commendations. We've got some uh, fun stuff throughout the program as well. But for now, I'd love to hear from you. And as I mentioned, there are three, four, five open lines, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to the Fugazi Tom in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom.
8: Hey, Frank. Uh, look, just for the record, I might hate spinach, I might hate squash, but I do not hate Asian people, okay? Very nice. I'm Very right, big of I'll... you to say that. Okay. Now, for, of the thing of the lawyers with Dolan, I would think he is, um, not uh, right. Don't have the right to um, ban them from the garden. But since he's having maybe litigation with them, he might feel it's appropriate because they might sabotage something. You know, and that is the scene of the crime, is it not? Well, the, yeah, the garden? yes. Right. I mean, that's okay. another fair
3: point. That's another fair point. Yeah. So Wh- I who... think
8: they might want to come in and, and and mess them up or make something so that they can, their case is stronger. You know what I'm saying? Just mess with something in there. All right. Well, for so their, for their benefit. So
3: um, I, I'm kind of not clear in which direction you're coming down. Do you think it's OK for Dolan to, you know, to uh, ban these folks or, or not?
8: No. No, no, I don't. But well, what about record. what you just
3: said? What about what you yeah. just...
8: Be- because this might uh, interfere with his case. You know, this is about being inside the garden, and they're claiming that somebody got hurt in there, so they might come in there and want to fix something. See, people could fall over this, fall over, you know, could, could do something to make their case a little stronger.
3: Right, but so I again, Tom, I, that, I don't understand that, 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 then why... Okay, I, yeah, but, I feel like you're kind of contradicting yourself, right? So you're saying on the one hand he shouldn't ban the lawyers, but then you're saying, well, but if the lawyers are allowed access to Madison Square Garden, they could do something to sabotage the case. I, I don't understand. Because
8: yeah, the case is in Madison Square Garden. Right,
3: I, I understand that, Tom. So, so, um, but I mean, under, the, under other
8: conditions, but since the case is in the garden, I think he he's got a point. But but, but on you. the regular, anywhere else, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I think the lawyers would have a right to go in, and, and everywhere but the scene of the crime. Yeah, well, you know okay, I mean?
3: fair enough, Tom. Thank you. You know, it, I mean, think about it in your own life. Right? It's easy to not empathize with billionaires, and I'm pretty sure James Dolan is a billionaire. Um, but let's say this was like a little. Let's say it's a bakery. Let's say it's a bakery, and somebody says they slipped and fell because that bakery didn't have adequate uh, snow shoveling after a snowstorm. And that person is suing that bakery. They hire the worst lawyer that they can find in terms of being a shark, a real killer. And that lawyer is, goes after this bakery with guns a blazing. And this bakery now has to hire their own lawyer. And spend a whole lot of money in legal fees and go into litigation. And what's even more valuable than money, in my view, time. And then that lawyer comes in and wants a cake. Should that baker or bakery owner get to throw them out? I say absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that James Dolan is not as sympathetic a character as my hypothetical bakery owner. But to me, the principle is still the same. If you're going to be an attorney and you're going to represent someone and you're going to sue someone and you're going to get into an adversarial situation with someone, you would better expect not to enjoy the services offered by that business. That's my take. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800 9222 Larry is on Long Island. Hello, Larry.
8: Try Brooklyn. (laughs) I didn't move yet.
3: (laughs) Ah, I'm sorry. We got Kenneth. Kenneth's back, so you're going to see all sorts of problems like that today. It's amazing we got you the right name, Larry.
16: Yeah. Um, Anyway, Frank, I have to tell you, your position is, I think, totally absurd. Because first of all, what, are you going to make a full-scale attack all of a sudden on the legal profession? What about lawyers that represent Criminal defendants, okay? Should everybody is So we don't like criminal defendants? So well, should everybody I do. I like criminal gang criminals. up? Or, uh well, you like you like all criminal defendants? Not, you like not, not all. you Like murderers? But I,
3: yeah, but I like all criminal defendants to have every single right afforded to them under the Constitution and have all of their civil liberties protected. Yes.
16: Okay, so there you go. But a lot of people hate. People who defend criminals, they say, how could you defend those criminals? Well, those people are Do those idiots. lawyers be banned also. No, from,
3: no, of from course it? not. Criminal, a criminal defense attorney. Thank you, Larry. As long as you're behaving in an ethical manner and not breaking the law, right. And not bending any rules. By the way, this is going to be one of the subjects on this upcoming week's edition of the racket report, which I'm really excited about. If, if this Racket Report that's going to be posted this week doesn't break every record for podcasts that there is, then I don't know what I'm doing, okay? By the way, subscribe to the Racket Report, any podcast app. I can't wait to give you a preview of what's coming up on this episode. Just subscribe to the Racket Report, and you'll get it as soon as it's posted. But uh, this is a totally separate issue, totally separate. To me, a criminal defense attorney, even one that represents the worst, most reprehensible person in the world, these, to me, are American heroes. These, to me, are what the Constitution is for. Um, John Adams, when he was an attorney, represented the folks that were accused in the Boston Massacre, the British soldiers that were accused of of killing innocent people. He represented them because he recognized, even prior to the Constitution's ratification, that these people are entitled to the best possible defense. If we start uh, kind of... Being treating criminal defendants who we think have done bad things as if their rights don't matter, then none of our rights matter. A civil matter, different ballgame. By suing someone and by being an attorney who sues someone else, you're forcing that business to spend money and time. Why should you then get to enjoy the fruits of that business's labor? I don't think you should. And I think James Dolan, it, it, maybe he's being a little sore, a bit of a sore loser here. I think he's right. I think he's right on principle. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Dan is in New Jersey. Hello, Dan. Hello, uh, Frank. So Hi, this is thanks. what I think. I
17: think the uh, James Dolan is right. I think he should keep those lawyers out of there because lawyers are going to want to investigate these matters and they're going to, you know, imagine getting a uh, free pass for a $25 ticket to get in somewhere and they're going to investigate what happened and see what's going on. I wouldn't give them that kind of a free pass and make it easy on them. So I think James Dolan's doing the right thing.
3: Yeah, Dan, thank you. And that's similar to the point that the Fugazi Tom from the Bronx was making. I think you're absolutely right here, but let's assume, look, Michelle Landy or another attorney, the guy that had Knicks season tickets for 50 years, I'm assuming they're not up to something nefarious. I'm assuming they just wanted to see a concert or take their kids to a basketball game. I get that. That That's why you think twice before you sue such and such an entity. It's my take anyway. Let me hear from you. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's...
3: It was a fantasy for attorney Michelle Landy to be able to see this song being performed at Madison Square Garden because she's suing the guy that owns the venue. Um, This song, by the way, is also, believe it or not, an integral plot point to the film Free Guy. Um, Not integral, but it's pretty significant. So if you I want to warn you, I was talking about how I endorsed that uh, motion picture. Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, uh, who may be the only actor that's uh, more handsome than Kenneth. But um, if you don't want this song stuck in your head for two days after seeing that picture, don't see the picture. That's the other thing. And by the way, I saw Encanto, which is a children's film that I also recommended. I still have three songs from Encanto stuck in my head. And uh, I... um, Look, I, I know Lin-Manuel Miranda is very talented and everything, and people are well aware of his abilities, as uh, what, everything he does. I think if they were to make Encanto into a Broadway play, that has the potential to be a, 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 a as big of a hit as Aladdin or The Lion King. I really do think that. I, there's so much great music in that picture already that I think that, uh, that would do really well as a Broadway musical. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Pete on Staten Island. Hello, Pete.
13: Hi, Frank. First of all, a speedy Recovery
3: to your family. I've been Thank
13: going you. through this for... It's month.
3: Well, and, it's the season. Uh, they say we're facing a triple demic, RSV, flu, COVID. And my brother in law has COVID. I think my sister in law, who's with child at the moment, has COVID. So uh I, I thankfully um, you know, I, I, they don't mention strep as part of the triple demic, but I guess we're just lucky.
13: Right. And I wanted to say, uh it's a little humorous. Um one of my friends fell in a deli on York Plane. And instead of going to the hospital, he crawled across New York Lane to, over to the law office across. I won't say the name. Of it. <laughs> yeah. And the guy told him, he says, where did you fall? He says, across the street. He says, well, I can't take the case. I got to worry about
8: what they put in my
3: coffee or well, my eggs. You there. know, Pete, oh. Pete,
8: that makes perfect
3: sense, right? See, that lawyer was exercising good gut judgment and very good discretion. That makes sense, right? But apparently it didn't occur to these people suing James Dolan, well, maybe you all want to go to Madison Square Garden again. So I I think that lawyer was exercising the kind of discretion that more plaintiff's attorneys should be, you know, should be adhering to. So
13: true, so true. And my wife agrees with you about that movie uh, Contro. And Contro, that should be a Broadway show. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. I know Broadway, and I, you know, I worked for it forty years, and I think so too. I, we enjoyed
3: it. Well, if I hear that they're, um, you know, moving forward with this, maybe your wife and I can both be investors, and we'll, you know, we'll we'll invest now, early on. My wife could put in a buck three eighty. That's about all. We yeah. got right. <laughs> now. That's probably a buck uh, a buck three eighty more than I can put in at the moment, Pete. Uh, hey, thanks for the call. Uh, good luck with your illness. So, what do you have? Do you have a sore throat, or what do you have? Oh, it's called, what is it? RSV. Oh, has got RSV. Okay, that's serious. Uh, so I kept telling my wife, and this really didn't make her feel good, that, um, that you know, uh, when she said she thought she had strap, I said that's what killed George Washington. And she didn't appreciate oh, no. m- the reference. But uh, <laughs> uh, what I didn't mention is that the real reason Washington died was because they bled him with leeches uh, and took out 40% of his blood. So... I don't know what kind of medical care you are getting, Pete, or you know what kind of plan you have. But if a doctor recommends leeches as a treatment for RSV, stay away from that. Stay away from that. Well, no I, leeches. I got,
13: I got enough relatives that are leeches, so <laughs> I will stay
3: away. I was going to say, Pete, the only leeches you should have any tolerance for are those in the legal profession. Pete, thank you for the call. Feel better. Okay. And Merry Christmas. If I don't talk to you, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Thank 848 9222 four eight ninety two twenty two. Let's say hello to Tom in staten island hello tom
4: good evening frank how are you tonight i make a living all right that's all we both do so i'm going to agree with you and disagree with you i want to hit you on two things but let me hit you with the attorney thing first uh i agree with you if you're suing an establishment the attorney shouldn't be allowed in but as for criminal defense attorneys in general i'll agree with you but suppose the the criminal defense attorney is defending somebody who committed a crime against that establishment Okay. Deli across uh, the street That they was
3: talking about. Yeah. Okay. I now, I couldn't be allowed in. Well, I don't know. Right. I, I'd have to. I'd have to think about that. I, again, it's very easy for me to um, pontificate on the radio, but when I'm actually in these situations, I I, uh, I have a much more difficult time in that in that gray area.
4: All right. Now let me hit you on the teacher thing. Right. The principal. So when I was in high school, I was a fat kid. My nickname was Fluss Fed when I was growing up. I was a really fat kid. So I went to St. Peter's Boys High School, and there was a gym teacher in there. And there was something I couldn't do in the gym class. And he said, you know why you can't do this? And I said, yeah, I know. I'm overweight. He goes, no, you're not overweight. You're fat. I said, gee, thanks a lot. He goes, well, you're fat. You want to do something about it? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And he goes, well, I'm the guy that's going to help you. He taught me how to exercise. He taught me how to eat right. My sophomore year, I wasn't fat. And I still follow his mantra of moderate exercise, moderate diet. And I haven't been called force-fed since. So could he do that today? He'd be locked up. He'd be in the papers. But my father supported this decision. He said, "You know what? The guy's right. He's trying to help you." So, yeah, but that was in the '80s. A different well, world no, now.
3: A different world is right. And uh, and I and I've seen. I saw you run at the Tunnel to Towers race. You're in good shape, Tom. Real quick, let me ask you this because I was talking sure. to my my neighbors briefly yesterday about how we're going to handle the. Uh tipping of our sanitation people for the for the season, and I know you know something about this area and um all my neighbors said, all right we're tipping our regular garbage folks, but we're not tipping the recycling guys that come on Mondays because they're always they're always different so um i i you know i kind of they made a very convincing argument. What do you say to that, Tom? Well, first
4: of all, I have to say it's illegal to tip a city employee. Right, but let's say I disregard your legal guidance. Well, then I think that, you know, certainly if you have regular guys, you should give them a tip. So your regular garbage guys. But, you know, you can give a smaller amount to your recycle guys because chances are it's probably one of three or two or three groups of guys that are doing it. You're just not recognizing it. You may have, you know, one group of guys on Monday, one pair. And then on the following Monday, it's a different pair. But then the third Monday, it might be the, the same pair that was on the first Monday. They generally are the same, just not as regular as your your uh, trash collectors. You guys that actually pick up refs. So
3: you say uh, if I'm going to make the decision to tip, tip both?
4: I would tip both. You could tip mm-hmm. the second group a little less because they're not your regular, so to speak. But, um, you know, I, I would tip both. All right. And I know you. You're a big tipper. You wouldn't sleep if you heard that truck and you didn't tip the guys. <laughs>
3: You'd be listening while you're trying to speak. No, <laughs> well, mostly I'm not sleeping because of uh, lifestyle choices. Tom, thank you very much for the call. Merry Christmas if I don't talk to you. All right. Hey, um, real quick, let me play this so- something for you. You know what this is? Listen to this, and just, you don't have to call in, but just think to yourself. Tell me if you can detect what this is. Any idea what that is? Let me play it for you one more time. Okay. That is a dust devil. Uh, no, it's not the vacuum or whatever it is. It's not just a dust devil. But that is, for the first time, a the sound of a what they call a dust devil on Mars. That's from Mars. That audio that we just played for you is from Mars. The Mars, um, the Perseverance, which is hanging around on Mars, has captured a dust devil up close for the first time. There's video of it. And this rover, the Perseverance, recorded video and audio from right inside the dust devil, and right from the Red Planet. How cool is that? So dust devils are like mini tornadoes. It's created when a column of warmer air rises up and whips up dust for a short while. They're spotted regularly on Mars by rovers and orbiters, usually as ghostly transients in the distance. But on September 27, 2021, Perseverance managed to get up close and personal with one of these dust devils. A large dust devil approached and then passed right over the top of the rover, allowing it to capture an unprecedented close-up of the event with several instruments at once. So, uh, I think it's I think it's pretty interesting. If you want to see the video of it, I'm going to link to it uh, on my Facebook page. You can go to facebook.com/slash Morano that's facebook.com slash moranofan. Very exciting what is happening in space travel, I, I have to tell you. I think it's uh, an exciting time to be interested in this stuff. By the way, speaking of space, there was uh, a story this weekend that the National UFO Reporting Center, which basically we've we've had folks from there on, it's basically just a group that tracks UFO sightings. And by the way, it doesn't mean aliens. It just means something that they look up in the sky and they can't explain. Look, it's it's birds, planes, E.T. No. Um, They are reporting that alien ship sightings in the Big Apple, New York City, were up 4% this year. And for the first time, New Yorkers submitted photographs to the center to try and back up their claims. So in 2022... The National UFO Reporting Center received accounts of 28 sightings. That's up from 27 the previous year. And in a dozen of these new cases, photographs were submitted thanks to a new user-friendly revised website. Whether the mostly uh, out-of-focus photos are actual proof of anything weird, like an alien or something, we don't know. But they do accompany witness statements that um, UFOs are regular visitors to the Big Apple. I got to stress, this is not – this doesn't mean it's aliens. could be anything. And there's all sorts I, – I saw a chart over the weekend looking at all of the possible explanations for UFOs, all of the UFO sightings over the last 50 years, and there's, sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that could be anything. But I just think it's interesting that um, – that New York is seeing an uptick. There was a story in the AP that the Pentagon has received several hundreds of new UFO reports. Isn't this interesting? A new Pentagon office set up to track reports of UFO activity has received several hundred. But so far, according to the Pentagon, there's no evidence of alien life. That is what the... um, This new group, the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, they call it ARO, A-A-R-O, All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. It was set up in July and it's responsible for not only tracking UFOs in the sky, but also underwater or in space or potentially an object that has the ability to move from one domain to the next. This was an office that was established following more than a year of attention on unidentified flying objects that military pilots have observed but have sometimes been reluctant to report due to, you know, fear of stigma. So I think it's good that we're destigmatizing people reporting about this because if people are afraid, especially in the military, to report what they're seeing, that could be a legitimate national security problem. By the way, there are some interesting – I'm not going to get into it now – but there's some interesting UFO-related stuff in this National Defense Authorization Act that Congress just passed – so I have a, an author or a reporter who studies this stuff pretty closely. He's going to be joining me Wednesday morning to help break this down. So uh, for those of you that follow this stuff, you know, please, you know, definitely tune into that. There was also a, an interesting op-ed in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. A bunch of you have sent this to me, and it's by Seth Shostak from uh, SETI, who's actually been a guest on this show. It's an essay. Could the government really cover up UFOs? And he says a long-awaited U.S. intelligence report is likely to disappoint Americans who believe that aliens have visited Earth. And it's really well written. And I'm going to invite Seth back on this show, even though he's skeptical of UFOs. Uh, but by the way, I'm all for hearing all points of view. Just like on every other subject, the UFO one is one that I am open-minded on. Right. Just like the Kennedy assassination, just like uh, any other subject that we've covered, political issues, whatever. So I'm all for hearing all points of view. So I'm going to reach out to Seth to see about getting him back on. But this was a really well written op ed, even though uh, he comes down to on the fact of uh, no extraterrestrials haven't likely visited the planet. So I thought that was uh, interesting. Uh, But it made me laugh. A bunch of folks also sent me this headline in The Washington Post. From over the weekend. so For whatever reason, it's a big weekend for UFO stories. Uh, The headline was this. No alien life discovered on Earth, Pentagon says, but search deepens. And more than one person that emailed me this subject, no alien life discovered on Earth, Pentagon says, included the line in the email to me. It was the first thing that I thought as well when I saw the headline. Because the Pentagon has such a great track record of telling us the truth. Oh, the Pentagon said so. All right. Well, see you later. Move it on. Makes no sense to me. Uh, I mean, to me, the fact that the Pentagon says that uh, there's no UFOs or anything like that, to me, that rings my bell as something to pay extra close attention to. All right. 800-848-9222. Let me uh, say hello first to Paul on Staten Island. Hello, Paul.
18: Good morning, Frank. How's everything?
3: Everything is just peachy. Thank
18: you. <laughs> peachy. <laughs> I was wondering if you, um, the, the ISS, the International Space Station, I've been, every now and then I come across articles on Facebook and pictures that they keep picking up, uh, videos and pictures of, for you know, UFOs coming towards the Earth. One was a 3,000 long, uh, 3,000 mile long uh, spaceship that they keep picking up from the space station. Have you know? Have you seen that yet? I've seen some of that. Yes, actually. Well, what do you think about
3: that? Those pictures that you Look- see. I um, I I, look, I am very open uh, to this kind of thing, and I find a lot of the reports very credible about this kind of thing. I find uh, I I find there this is one of those areas where there are many more questions than answers. So uh, I think that's uh, I think that's all really interesting. Get back to work, Paul. 800-848-9222. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to Tom in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Hi, Frank. Hi, yes.
11: I'll I'll be brief. Uh,
19: maybe uh, somebody on your station, yourself, was. I guarantee like, you, Tom, uh, will not
3: be brief. I'm not going to interrupt uh,
19: him on Sunday. Let's see the how long programs, this actually takes. You know, uh, they you can have an on-air. Uh, party, you know, Christmas party, and you can put Hanukkah in with it, Hanukkah and a Christmas party on one program, like, uh, uh, you know, maybe your program, uh, or maybe uh, on Sunday with uh, with Joan Hamburg and Adams, you know? Well, I, they, I think that's actually... They could combine the, t- they could combine the times together. And have a Christmas and Hanukkah party in one.
3: Well, uh, that's actually not a bad idea, uh, Tom. And I always try to do kind of some special Christmas programming when I'm on the air on Christmas Day. But what would it sound like? What would the Christmas party sound like? on Well,
19: air? wait a minute. Now, they can have representatives from the Catholic Church. And they can have uh, a rabbi, maybe Rabbi Potasnik on there. And they can have some songs of uh, uh, the Hanukkah songs, and they can have Christmas songs, and they can put it together, and they have a comment with each other. It would be nice. And and they can invite uh, some uh, gourmet chefs to be on the program to bring in some uh, different foods, you know, from each side.
3: Well, look, I like the idea. I I don't know that we have the uh, the means to, um, you know, to uh, produce that between now and, and then. But I like the idea, Tom. Yeah, I, I'm well, for I it. mean,
11: that's why I
19: thought I'd call you up and give you that idea.
3: Okay, thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. 800 9222 Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert.
11: Hi, Frank. Thanks for that audio of the uh, rover. That was really cool. What website did you get that from? Was it space.com or uh, NASA? Uh, yeah. or you know, a number else? of
3: places linked to it, but I'm going to have to uh, – I, I, I don't remember where I saw it initially, but uh, I posted the video and the audio on my Facebook page. They could check it out there, com slash MoranoFan.
11: Well, uh, a lot of people don't use Facebook <laughs> because they don't want them tracking their every – click and
17: movement on the web
3: well that's why i played the I audio on the radio as well you know if i had yes, a tv but, show i'd show the video on there as well but i'm kind of limited into the two ways that i can share information with people are you know on the radio and on social media
17: what about wabc's website
3: uh, that's actually not a bad idea uh robert i will uh suggest that to the the website folks
17: Oh,
11: thank you very much. You know, Mars' atmosphere is like 1% the density of the Earth, and that's why that recording is is also so amazing. You know how hard it is to, like, get sound out of such a thin atmosphere?
3: Yeah. No, it, it's wild. It's really rare, which is why I was so eager to uh, to play that. Thank you, Robert. Tom is on Staten Island. Hello, Tom.
13: Hey, hey Frank. Hey, Uh Dave Mangino you know, had it on his podcast that they Had some reports Congress that that these things, you know, you know, exist. Like, you know what I mean? That they transform from water to sky to things, and they have no clue what it is.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, we've seen um, even military videos where you have very experienced pilots, naval pilots. Essentially saying um, that they don't understand what they're, you know, what they're looking at. So, uh, look, I think uh, I think there's like I said, there's many more questions than answers.
13: You even even said that um, the Russians tried to engage some of these and, you know, lost pilots due to it.
3: Yeah. Uh, Well, well, well said, Tom. I mean, exactly. I'm not familiar with the Russian engagement with them, but I don't doubt it. I certainly don't doubt it. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
3: This is, I'm not joking when I say Santa. this, one of the greatest Christmas songs of all time. This is one of my favorites. Uh, and it's one that, unlike that Mariah Carey song and Jingle Bells and... Uh, uh, grandma got run over by a reindeer and uh, rocked around the Christmas tree It's one that for whatever reason you don't hear a thousand times every Christmas season. you never hear this song on the radio except when I play it This is Must Be Santa by Bob Dylan and I have to tell you this is my favorite Bob Dylan song It's great let me hear another 30 seconds Must be Santa, must be Santa. See how catchy this is? This is great. There was an original version um, back in the 60s. and um, But to me, this Bob Dylan version is just great. It's like polka meets, I don't know, a drinking song. It's great. I love it. From his uh, Christmas album "Christmas in the Heart," um, this was the Daily News review of the Bob Dylan song. "Quote: It's sort of unclear if Dylan was aiming to celebrate the holiday or gently poke fun at the music's Norman Rockwell-esque simplicity." You know what? Daily News is ridiculous. They, they I, I love that song, love it. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. By the way, uh, yesterday, Sunday. I was um, all set to go to my brother Nicholas's birthday party. And, um, you know, his birthday was a couple of days ago. You remember when he and my cousin Natalie, who have the same birthday, got to pick all the bumper music. And I was initially a little bummed because I was going to miss a very hot Christmas party. Like one of the hottest tickets in town. I was actually invited to the Christmas party of...
10: I, I can't find to help me celebrate my last day as your mayor. Time sure does fly when you're doing something that you love. Huh? You see, the city of New York was in my blood from the very day I was born. Uh, on Barrow Place in Greenwich Village. When I was born here, to be an Italian and a Jew. I may. Oh. <laughs> that made you a true third-class citizen.
3: That's right. Tony Lobianco, not Fiorello LaGuardia, but you can easily confuse the two Tony Lobianco, who's been a guest on this show many times, who's a great guy um who i've see, who's played Fiorello LaGuardia in three different theatrical productions, who's great in the French connection he's great in everything he's one of the, he's a fine fine actor and a, an even better person he was kind of, i don't know how I made the list my buddy Nick from the gold Shield uh, which is if you're looking for a group to support or be a part of. Check them out, thesimpletruth.us, if you're interested in ending military suicide. But my buddy Nick must have put in a good word for the, for me with Tony LoBianco, because this is one of the best Christmas parties of the season. I mean, it's the it's a place, not only where there's a great party, but it's a place to see be seen, to see and be seen, right? So I said, oh my goodness, I must have won the lotto here. I got invited... Sick to, invite. Got invited to uh, Tony LoBianco's party. So I... Uh, ultimately, it's the same day as my brother's birthday, so not every day that I get invited to Tony LoBianco's. But unfortunately, I had to turn down the Tony LoBianco invite because you know family. You know you got to go to your family party, even though my family has quite a few parties. So, uh, but would I wouldn't I would miss anything for that, right? So um, I didn't go to Tony's. Was all set to go to my brother Nick's, but then. Wrinkle in the plans here, which may inure to my benefit, turns out a lot of people in that wing of the Moreno family, some of them wanted to see Santa Claus. They must have heard that Bob Dylan song, and they were all of a sudden struck with the spirit of St. Nick. And so they relocate the Nicholas birthday celebration to a birthday brunch to Manhattan, which is the same county, the same island. That the Tony Lobianco party is at. So I'm saying, wait a minute. This is poised to work out here. I can go to Nick's birthday brunch. Then go to Tony Lobianco's. Then come to the radio station and sleep a little. Or get some work done. I I can't believe it. Because this does not happen to the Frankster. But this actually may work out. And then, of course, um, my wife gets what we believe is strep throat. And I'm not able to go to anything. So I was home taking care of my wife and child and obviously everybody understood that uh, I couldn't be at anything. But um I am eager to hear how that uh, Tony LoBianco party was. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to me right now that did attend. If you if you did, you know, let me know how that went. So I'm sure that was uh I'm sure that was a lot of fun and I was sorry to uh, sorry to miss it. But you know, as sorry as I was to miss it, it was nice to be able to or be forced, I should say, to stay home for basically 72 hours. It was a very, in some ways, stressful because everybody's sick and you running to the drugstore and getting drugs and you're being sideswiped by red cars. Uh, but in some ways, very fun in that you don't have to go out and do all these things. So it was nice to be home. And then I got to spend some time with my neighbors. Uh, they did a, an outdoor cocktail yesterday with a bonfire in one of my neighbors front lawns and I got to uh, go to that which I wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to do had I been at Nicholas's birthday or at Tony Lobianco's party and I got the skinny on all the local neighborhood gossip. I mean it's it's great. It's if there's no drama on our block, my neighbors will find a way to create drama. They're a great group. I love them. Great group. All right, 800 848 9222. Andy, speaking of musicians, Andy B is the father of one of our theme songs. Uh, he is calling from Staten Island. Hello there, Andy.
8: Hey, Frank. How's Carmine doing?
3: He's doing great. He's doing Thank great. Thank
8: God. I love that kid. That's something he that called the other night. You didn't want to hear about Carmine.
3: Thank you. Yeah, well, that's true.
8: Yeah, this goes out to Carmine.
3: Love it, love it, very nice, Andy. With a little piece of the new song. I'm going to send you some more I, I can't wait. I can't wait. Uh, I appreciate that, Andy. Uh, have a merry Christmas. Thanks for the call. You know, um, th- uh, you know, I really do miss Carmine when I'm at work, especially when after the weekend and I get to spend the whole weekend with him. And uh, then, you know, I almost suffer from Carmine withdrawal when I have to get back to work. But, you know. We had these Carmine stickers made for his first birthday to give to our family, and I put one on my computer so I can look at them, really, you know, whenever I want just by looking at my uh, computer. Technically, it's, you know, the radio station's computer, and hopefully the Red Apple Audio Network doesn't mind me sticking a Carmine sticker on there. But it got me thinking, uh, more than one person has remarked, including Valerie Smaldone, who was here the other day. She sees Carmine on my computer, and she never met Carmine. She says, is that your baby? I said, yeah. And she said he's very red. And uh, I said, yeah, my wife's a a redhead. And, you know, Carmine looks very um, Irish. He's got a very Irish look, but he's got a very Italian ethnic name. So I hope he doesn't mind that as he gets older. Here he is. I mean, his coloring could change a little bit, but I don't see him changing significantly. He's got red hair and blue eyes, and he's running around, you know, named Carmine Morano. I hope he doesn't resent that going forward. I don't think he will. But um, he's got the middle name, William. So if he wants to go by C. William Morano, that's a little more Irish, I guess. So, All right. Uh, Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it.
1: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
3: Good morning everyone. This is the other side of midnight. Well, we knew this hour would come, Elgon, with so much negativity out there in the world, especially during the holiday season. Aren't there just occasions where we need to sit up and recognize people that have done something positive for society. Well, we do that each and every week on this program as part of
1: The Other Side of Midnight presents commendations.
3: I must commend a thief in in uh, South Carolina. We don't know this thief's name, but it took place this crime took place in the city of Greenville, South Carolina. Here's what happened. There's a a restaurant, a local bonjour crepe restaurant, and someone actually stole a Santa Claus display on December 14th from the restaurant. Now, you think who would do that? What kind of miserable person would ever steal a Santa Claus display in December? So the city said the suspect stole Santa overnight and that police were looking for those involved. So the There's local news reports on this, but it was the thief himself, or herself. It was the Santa thief who returned the Santa display to the restaurant on his own, according to a reporter with WSPA-TV in the Carolinas. So the reporter declined to comment on the story, but the restaurant's owner, Myra Gallo, Um, chose not to file charges and, um, apparently this thief who we don't know this person's name, they're using the name Melvin for the thief. I don't know if that's a pseudonym or if that was actually his name was surprisingly there the next day after the local news ran the story in front of the restaurant. So the owner went up to Melvin, Melvin had flowers for the owner and apologized. And the owner said, well, you know, if you really are serious about apologizing, I want you to apologize on camera. So they find Henry Coburn, this local reporter who did the story. And the thief apologizes on camera. So the thief told Henry Coburn that he'd been drunk on the night that Santa was stolen he saw the display and wanted to steal it because it looked cool. The thief said he felt bad for what happened and would do whatever it took to make it right, including paying for damages, work for free, whatever it took. He wanted to fix it. He said, I'm really sorry, and uh, I, know I'm, I know saying sorry doesn't do anything, but I promise I'll do better. And I'm commending this person because we all make mistakes, right? And uh, we, especially when we're a little intoxicated or maybe more than a little intoxicated. And it's the fact that how you deal with these mistakes that makes you the kind of person you are. And uh, this person, Melvin, really dealt with this appropriately. In my judgment, this is exactly if you make a mistake, whether it's because you're under the influence or not, this is what you should do. You should own up to it apologize and do whatever you can to try and make it better and I can't think of a better I can't think of a better um, situation than than this one to highlight uh, at the holiday season and I must commend the soccer team for Argentina Argentina you know I actually watched this was the first World Cup game that I actually watched. I figured it's going to be such a big deal. Everyone's talking about it. Let me at least watch it. So I end up watching the end of the regular game between Argentina and France. And then it goes into overtime. But my son has taken to chewing on the remote control and playing with the remote control and and changing channels on He has a way of putting things on the television that I didn't even know we got, right? I, you look up. I never know what's going to be on. So anyway... He turned off the World Cup, so I didn't get to see the exciting conclusion. But uh, Argentina won it uh, in overtime in a very, very, in a shootout with Messi, who is one of the apparently best soccer players in the world. My knowledge of organized soccer is less than zero. And he scored twice in what they're saying is one of the most exciting World Cup finals in history. So I know a lot of people were following this closely, but even if you weren't, to be able to win the entire World Cup is an incredible accomplishment. I have my problems with FIFA. I have my problems with Qatar and how this World Cup was run. But um, you can't take anything away from the athletes involved here. So, as far as the Argentinian soccer team, I do commend you. I must also commend Nelly Chaboy. Nelly Chaboy in 2019 quit a lucrative software engineering job in Chicago. Why? Well, she did this in order to go create computer labs for Kenyan schoolchildren. She has a nonprofit group called Tech Lit Africa, and it has provided thousands of students across rural Kenya with access to donated, upcycled computers, and it's giving these kids, these kids in Kenya, a real chance at a brighter future. She um, was voted on by the public as the 2022 CNN Hero of the Year. So she's going to receive $100,000 to expand her work. And she and the other top 10 CNN heroes were all um, honored yesterday. And they'll all also receive a $10,000 cash award. So uh, commendation to you, Nellie Chaboy. Great, great opportunity that she's given. To the folks at, uh, you know, in Kenya. I also want to commend the British soccer fans. Now, this is maybe even a more remarkable accomplishment than what the Argentinian World Cup soccer team did. British soccer fans at the World Cup in Gadar behaved so impeccably that none of them, in the first time that anybody can remember... None of them were arrested. That's right. Not a single soccer fan from either England or Wales was arrested. Um, we don't know the last time this has happened. The No British soccer fans arrested at the World Cup. But this is what we like to see. The British soccer fans are doing the same thing that the Santa Thief did, which is they're learning from their behavior and they're doing the right thing. So kudos to you, British soccer fans, Let's see this again in four years, shall we? I must also commend Rishi Popat, a Ph.D. student studying at the University of Cambridge. The, he came across this ancient language puzzle, which was impossible to solve. Or so we thought. So this student, Rishi Popat, Ph.D. student has decoded this code, which was thought of as impossible to decode. It was a rule taught by Panini, which is not a sandwich, but an Indian grammarian. He was the founder of the Grammarian Angels before uh, Curtis Sleewa took over. And uh, he was an Indian grammarian who's believed to have lived in northwest Pakistan and southeast Afghanistan in the 5th century B.C., Scholars have referred to him as one of the fathers of linguistics itself. Curtis just gets to father all those two dozen children he's got. And Sanskrit is an ancient classical Indo-European language from South Asia. And it's the literary language of Hinduism. It's also how much of India's greatest science, philosophy, poetry, and other literature has been written. It's spoken um, by about twenty-five thousand people today. So this puzzle was written in Sanskrit. There's only twenty-five thousand people that even speak Sanskrit, so it's pretty difficult to decipher for the first, you know, in the first place. But Raj Popat decoded this twenty-five hundred-year-old algorithm. Um, ...that can accurately use Panini's language machine for the first time. And this system consists of 4,000 rules, and it's detailed in a word I can't pronounce, which, but it's considered his greatest work. And it's believed to have been written 500 B.C. And it's meant to work like a machine, where the base and the suffix of a word are fed in... ...and a step-by-step process should turn them in to grammatically correct words and phrases... So Panini had this incredible mind, and he built this machine that was unrivaled in human history. And sure enough, nobody could figure out how to decode it. Nobody could figure out how to work it until this guy. And I think this is a remarkable human achievement. Absolutely incredibly. Um, he used a very new interpretation for this algorithm and was able to figure out how to get this language machine, basically, to work. So it's a remarkable discovery, I think. And I want to give a commendation to Tom Brady. Tom Brady, whatever you think about him and his time with the Patriots and his time with the Buccaneers and his marriage to Giselle, Giselle Buncheon and the fact that he's 900 years old and he's still playing professional football. Last Sunday, he really showed, I think, what kind of person he is, what kind of athlete, and the kind of guy he was. So last Sunday, not yesterday, but the previous week, he was playing against the San Francisco 49ers. That was the team he grew up rooting for. He grew up rooting for quarterbacks like Joe Montana and Steve Young, and he got to play against the team that he grew up wishing to play for, basically. And he did awfully, awfully. The Bucks lost 35-7. to Tom Brady threw a whole bunch of interceptions. Sure enough, after the game, one of the fellas, uh, Dre Greenlaw, a linebacker for the 49ers, the opposing team, Dre Greenlaw caught one of Tom Brady's interceptions. This is a young guy. I think he's 24 years old. Tom Brady's 45. This guy has been a fan of Tom Brady since he was a child. He goes up to Tom Brady after the game and asks him to sign the ball that he intercepted. So understand, Brady throws an interception. Greenlaw catches it. And then after the game, after Brady's team gets crushed, Greenlaw goes up to Brady and asks him to sign the ball. He says, look, I've been a fan of yours since I was a kid. You're a legend. And Tom Brady, to his credit signed the ball. Um I think that is the mark of a good sport. And uh, really even um even Greenlaw said he's a good guy. The 49ers, the team that just beat the Buccaneers. He they tweeted about what a class act Tom Brady was. Um Brady is A fierce competitor. And by his own admission, he's somebody that has called himself a bad sport. Remember, he didn't shake Nick Foles, the quarterback for the Eagles, hand when the Eagles beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Uh, Well, I think he might be softening because this is a classy thing to do. So I got to give Tom Brady a commendation for that. I also want to give these students at a school in Great Britain, by the way, again, I want to stress, no British soccer fans arrested at the World Cup this year. Good for them. I want to give these students at this school in Britain, the Gesher School, which is a Jewish school for students with special education needs in England, a commendation. They have constructed, they have broken a Guinness World Record by constructing an 18-foot menorah out of Legos. They used 80,000 Lego bricks to make this menorah. This is incredible. It took them a year under the instruction of teaching assistant Danny Casado, a former Lego employee. The menorah looks great. And currently Guinness is evaluating this record. But uh, this is really impressive. So kudos to the students and this teaching assistant here. Uh, last night, of course, the first night of Hanukkah, we, we lit a menorah in our house. So happy Chanukah to everybody that is celebrating. Let me also give a commendation to Joyce DeFaugh. She is a much older student than the ones that I just told you about. Joyce DeFaugh of Illinois... 90 years old, last Sunday, she received a bachelor's degree from Northern Illinois University more than seven decades after she first set foot on campus, becoming what officials believe to be the oldest person ever to graduate from the school. I think this is extraordinary. You know, for all this uh, talk of, uh, oh, Trump's too old, Biden's too old, Pelosi's too old, this person's too old, that person's too old. I love hearing stories about this, of older folks continuing their education, older folks staying active. For some reason, I think there's some folks that believe, in my case as well, that once you get to a certain age, you're too old for blank. You're too old for this, you're too old for that. What Joyce DeFaw is doing here in getting this bachelor's degree at 90 years old and becoming the oldest person at um, at at Northern Illinois University ever to get a bachelor's degree, I think she's sending a very powerful message to all of us that you're never too old to do anything, to do anything. Let me also commend Elon Musk. I had denounced Elon Musk on Friday, rightly so, for being a little hypocritical on the free speech issue by suspending the accounts of all those uh, journalists that were tweeting about where his jet would go well to his credit Elon Musk has reinstated the Twitter account of those journalists that were suspended for um, publishing public data about the billionaire's plane you know Elon Musk has the opportunity to do something really neat here really special and that's show that free speech can work in the world of social media but it doesn't work if he's just going to be suspending the accounts of people that he didn't like or doesn't like. So I think that is a that is a positive step. Finally, and perhaps most important, I want to give a commendation to the family of New York City firefighter William Moon. Unfortunately, um, William Moon was uh, critically hurt when he fell from a makeshift scaffolding while preparing for a drill. In Crown Heights on Monday, he died, but his family has made the decision to donate his organs. And they did this because, as in the words of the fire commissioner, Laura Kavanaugh, he was very passionate about organ donation. And just as he saved countless lives working out of the firehouse, he'll continue to save lives in his passing. I'm a big advocate of uh, organ donation. I give a lot of credit to anybody that gives an organ while they're alive. But for those of us that aren't brave enough to do so while we're alive, like, uh, you know, the voice of the sick invite sounder that you heard earlier there, my friend Danielle, very bitter about uh, being excluded from our house on New Year's Eve, Eve. Sorry again about that, Danielle. Um, she gave a kidney to a coworker, which I think is a really impressive thing. My uncle John same thing gave a kidney to a coworker uh, so whether you're there's a big need for organs, you hear all the people I keep a list of our listeners that have been willing to that that want to receive a new organ mostly it's a kidney so far I have 11 listeners that listen to us and want a kidney and so far only one listener has been willing to give one. And I think it's no reflection on you, but it's a reflection upon the fact that not a lot of people are willing to give up their organs. Whether you're willing to do it when you're dead or while you're alive, I think it's such a great thing. It's really a wonderful thing to be able to save someone's life like this. And I think it says a lot about firefighter William Moon and his commitment to saving lives that he was just as passionate about organ donation as he was about being a firefighter, and kudos to his family for following through on what he wanted to do here. All right, we're going to talk JFK, the assassination of, and the documents involving, in just a moment with a terrific historian by the name of Martin K.A. Morgan. He'll join us straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
2: Oh, the bullets of the false revenge have struck us once again. As the angry seas have struck upon the sand And it seemed as though a friendless world Had lost itself a friend That was the president and that was the man Oh, I still can see him smiling there And waving at the crowd as he drove through the music of the band. And never even knowing no more time would be allowed. Not for the president and not for the man.
3: This is Here's Phil Haas singing, that Here's was the president. You know, it's funny. A lot of different incidents happen in American history. And And I was thinking about this this weekend as I was uh, pouring over all of these uh, JFK assassination documents that were released or unredacted on Friday. And I'm thinking to myself, why almost 60 years after this one incident, tragic as it is, why do we still talk about this? Why do we still care about this? Um, Because we see these numbers of um, what segments get downloads, what segments get uh, streaming numbers, and for whatever reason – Whenever we do anything related to the Kennedy assassination, the streaming numbers go through the roof. The podcast downloads go through the roof. And I'm thinking to myself, what is it about this incident? There's a lot of tragic incidents. We talk about a lot of different things. Why this? And I came to the conclusion, and I have no idea if this is accurate. We may ask our next guest what his take on this is. But we came to the con- I came to the conclusion that, one, I think the Kennedy assassination for people that lived through it really sort of symbolized the day that America lost its innocence, that this was a wake-up call for America, that we that the world was a really cruel place. Now, the world was just as cruel on December 1st of 1963 as it was on August 1st of 1963. But I think it kind of forced people to stand up and take note. The other reason that I think so many people are interested in this subject and have been since 1963 – is because there has never really been a wide acceptance of what was originally the official story, that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Someone who has uh, raised and analyzed some of those questions is Martin K.A. Morgan. Martin K.A. Morgan is a, a terrific author and historian, who specializes in American and military history. He's written several books. He's uh, been featured regularly on the History Channel. Also happens to be uh, a bit of a firearms historian as well, who has encyclopedic knowledge of the AR-15. Martin, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio.
14: Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on, Frank.
3: So let me begin with the beginning. I'm going to get your take on the, uh, the documents that have been released and the battle over these documents. But um, the official story that Oswald acted alone, the story that the Warren Commission put out there, do you, uh, do you have any reason to doubt that story?
14: I don't really, and I feel like this recent document production is going to underscore that story to a certain extent because one thing that is expected to come out of this production of additional new document, 13,173 new unredacted documents, um, what what we expect to come out of it, one detail that we're kind of anticipating is that it's going to um, offer some incriminating evidence that the FBI was aware of Lee Harvey Oswald, was aware that he was a threat to the president, uh, was aware that he had, in fact, threatened the president, and that they were watching him, and that in, that 's information that um, has not been disclosed to the public because of the way that the documents were previously redacted uh,
3: there one of the interesting theories and it was covered in the uh, book Mortal Error thirty years ago and it 's been written about elsewhere. One of the uh, theories that i 've heard that some people have subscribed to over the years is that President Kennedy might have been mistakenly shot by Secret Service agent George Hickey in 1963. I'm sure, I know that you've looked at this, what is your evaluation on that theory of the
14: Secret Service agent actually killing Kennedy and not Oswald? What first appealed to me about the theory presented in Mortal Error was the fact that the ballistic performance of the AR-15 that was involved um, would have matched exactly what we're seeing in the footage that Abraham Zapruder filmed that day. Um, particularly this, this intensely destructive and um, lethal strike to the head that could have been caused by a high-velocity, small-caliber bullet uh, to the likes of a 55-grain bullet fired by an early AR-15. And... Part of the reason that I found the theory to be compelling is that I have overwhelmingly found that previous discussions of all of the firearms that were involved in the assassination, from Oswald's firearm, um, a Carcano Model 9138 uh, carbine, from that all the way up to the pistol that Oswald used to murder uh, George Tippett, Um, I found that there was kind of a a lacking of competence in a lot of that discussion. You add to that um, the great complicating wild card in the form of the Oliver Stone movie, which just really poorly portrayed things like ballistics and the firearms that were involved. I find the mortal error theory to be a little compelling because the AR-15 could very well have done what we're seeing in the Zapruder film.
3: Uh, so why has that – why was that theory, the, the um, George Hickey, Secret Service agent, AR-15 theory, some people say he lost his balance and accidentally squeezed the trigger. Some say he didn't even squeeze the trigger and the, the weapon might have fired uh, without him squeezing the trigger. Why was that not taken more seriously by, say, the Warren Commission or other investigators that have investigated this?
14: Warren Commission doesn't investigate this at all. Warren Qu- Commission was aware of the fact that there was an AR-15 in Dealey Plaza that day, uh, but they they didn't inspect the firearm. In fact, there's no record of the serial number of the firearm, and that sounds like a meaningless detail, but that's actually quite important when you consider that 219 days before the assassination. President Kennedy had appeared in the Oval Office with a U.S. Army general who was his aide, during which President Kennedy is seen inspecting what we believe to be the actual rifle that Hickey was using that day in Dallas. Uh, So the serial number would help us uh, confirm that. At any rate, um, one of the details of the early development of the AR-15 is that this was a firearm unlike anything the world had ever seen. This was a firearm that was producing lethality unlike previous generations of firearms. Previous generations that had focused and concentrated more on heavier bullets moving at speeds more like 2,700 feet per second. The AR-15, in contrast, was accelerating a much smaller bullet, a 55-grain bullet, Um, To a speed of approaching 3,300 feet per second, which is an absolute breakneck speed, which changes all of the physics involved in the movement of the projectile and, and provides the projectile with greatly enhanced lethality. There was, at the time that Warren Commission was convened, there was little to no knowledge about the AR-15. Mm. There was almost none, and it's because it was a new firearm. In fact, the weapon had only been developed beginning in 1957. Um, the production of the prototype rifles continued through to 1959. And then the, the, the production of the, of the first mass-producible version of the AR-15, which was about the 22nd iteration, moving through, a, uh, moving through a batch of about 20 or so prototypes before they got to a final production mo- model, that varied model didn't last long. Only 14,000 examples were produced between late 1959 and mid-1962. And those firearms were still so brand new that people were consistently misidentifying them. In fact, at Warren Commission, there was a point of confusion where civilians who were present in Dealey Plaza would ultimately testify to seeing a Secret Service agent with a Thompson submachine gun. There were no Thompson submachine guns in Dealey Plaza that day. We know that. There was, however, an AR-15, but no one knew what it was. Mm. None of the members of the commission would have known what this firearm was. The firearm was only just in two entering the service of the United States Air Force. It had not yet entered the United States Army service. The Army wouldn't begin purchasing the weapon until the following year. And so the weapon was largely an, an unknown, even at the time that the, that the Warren commission was convened, there was very little known about the weapon. And it, if you have a close read of mortal error, the the book is presenting this theory that the reason that it doesn't come up at Warren commission is because of the fact that there was a conspiracy on the part of the members of the secret service to conceal mm. the fact that a, an AR 15 had been discharged that day. and, If they had a reason to conceal that um, and a negligent discharge that led the reason would be uh,
3: just so folks understand the mentality of people that want to want to keep that from coming to to light. I guess the the reason would be to not make the Secret Service look like they're incompetent and uh, are incapable of protecting presidents instead of killing them.
14: Precisely. That is precisely why. And and George Hickey is no longer alive, and this is the agent that is at the center of this theory. Um, and George Hickey opposed the circulation of this theory once the book was published to the point where there was a, a lawsuit that basically had the book withdrawn until after his death. And one detail that is critical to understanding this formula effectively is that Hickey May have done this, may have experienced a negligent discharge, without having even placed his finger on the trigger of the firearm, and that's because that very first mass production model of the AR-15 rifle, um, the model that was the model number assigned to it at Colt's patent firearms when it went into mass production was the model 601 the model 601 which lasts only from late 59 to mid 62 it had a high mass firing pin and one of the problems encountered that would lead ultimately to a change of the of the design of the firing pin was that the mass of the firing pin was sufficient um, to cause the inadvertent discharge of a cartridge in the chamber just by virtue of the mass of the firing pin moving forward with the the momentum of the bolt moving forward in other words if if someone placed a magazine inside of the weapon when the bolt was held in the rear position by the bolt stop and then they pressed the bolt stop to release the bolt chamber around that bolt would move forward with so much force and the the high mass firing pin would be thrown forward by the momentum of its mass uh, with such force that it could set off a cartridge Uh, that model of firing pin was changed in the following model, the model what that we call the model 602 that was introduced in July of 1962. And that's the same, the same profile of firing pin that remains in all of the M16 AR15 derivatives that are still in service to this day. But they had to move away from this initial high mass firing pin that was introduced with the 601 because it was periodically firing cartridges without the operator even touching the trigger.
3: Interesting. Uh, that is uh, wild and really does seem to off- solve a lot of mysteries and offer a lot of explanations, including why the bullet wounds in Kennedy's head point more towards kind of an AR 15 style bullet than the one that uh, Oswald purportedly had fired. If people are just tuning in, by the way, we're talking with. Martin K.A. Morgan, he's written several books. He's a regular on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, National Geographic. If you need a historian that not only sounds like he knows what he's talking about but looks good on television, Martin K.A. Morgan is at the top of everybody's list. Martin, uh, the, the congressional committee that looked into the assassination post-Warren Commission in the 70s, did they look at this theory that it might have been the Secret Service that killed Kennedy accidentally?
14: They did not. This is completely absent from Warren Commission and House Select Committee. The theory doesn't come up until um, Bonner Manager publishes his book, Mortal Error. And he only published that book because he began interacting with a man named Howard Donahue. And Howard Donahue was central to um, Kennedy assassination as a subject, as a general subject. Because he was one of the marksmen who had participated at the FBI range um, in the evaluation to determine whether or not it was physically possible for someone to deliver the course of fire that was believed to have been delivered. You might remember that at Warren Commission, um, the information is presented about Oswald and his three shots. There were questions about whether or not those three shots could be completed in the amount of time that they were completed. And eventually... As a result of the House Select Committee, they brought in um, a a series of marksmen who attempted to duplicate those shots in the same amount of time that Oswald supposedly delivered them to the extent that they even set up a course with a moving target. And Howard Donahue was the only person who completed the course of fire and completed it just as Oswald had. Um, That made him, I think that invested him with a little, little bit of expertise. Um, and, and commenting on the matter. And it was him who eventually began to consider the possibility of a negligent discharge on the part of one of the secret service agents, um, that struck the president in the back of the head and actually killed him. And Part of his expertise in that was that in later years, he was operating a gun store. He was operating a gun store when the Colt AR-15 as a commercially available firearm to civilians was circulating broadly and um, it was experiencing a great deal of popularity in the country. And and Donahue, in years after, the um, stretching from the 70s and into the 80s, as he gained more and more experience with the AR-15, he began to think that this might actually be the firearm that did it.
3: That is uh, really interesting. I know that you indicated that uh, the Secret Service agent, Mr. Hickey, didn't want this book out there, that there was a lawsuit to stop the publication of Mortal Error. Did Hickey ever um, – well, m- not responding to this theory, did he ever give his own account of what occurred and what he witnessed on the day of the assassination?
14: Hickey gave a very cursory interview to Warren Commission. It's not very detailed, and it was obvious in reading that record that they weren't even thinking of this idea of, well, maybe one of the Secret Service agents experienced a negligent discharge, and maybe that contributed to what happened. That wasn't even on the docket. They weren't even looking at that as a possibility. And in fact, nobody was considering that as a possibility um, until the book came out in 1992, and... No sooner had the book come out than the book was ultimately withdrawn and it just kind of went away. Copies had circulated. So there were, there were copies of it out there. And in fact, a friend of mine gave me a copy and invited me to have a look at it and read it. And just with some experience owning and shooting AR 15 rifles to, to include spending some time with the Colt model 601, which is the exact type of rifle that Hickey had in Dealey Plaza. Um, With that, that experience, I then read the book and it, it's It came to me it came to me as slightly compelling it mm. it certainly doesn't seem more ridiculous than some of the other theories that I've heard about what happened that day
3: uh, That's absolutely right, so given the the credibility that this theory has, what should be the next step in this? Does it matter? Are we at the point where we should let sleeping dogs lie, or should there be some official Entity that says yes, this is what occurred. Let's at least look into it and see if this is what occurred.
14: What a cool question! Because the what I think should happen is that there should be a full, a a more expansive investigation. I realize that's probably a hard car to sell right now because after Warren Commission, after the House Select Committee, after everything that has happened since, I think. Sometimes I'm led to think that maybe people have reached their limit in terms of considering possible theories about the Kennedy assassination. But based on um, your preamble as we began this uh, the broadcast, it sounds like the popularity is out there. It sounds like this is a topic that people can't get enough of. And since that might be the case, one point I love to bring out when I, whenever I, I talk about the subject is – the the president's brain, as ghoulish and as fiendish as this might sound, the president's brain would be a very, very important piece of physical evidence that would tell us very important things about the bullet that struck him in the head. And as you well know, the president's brain mysteriously disappeared shortly after his autopsy, mm. and it has never been seen since.
3: It's so interesting. It seems to me like if this theory were more widely adopted, this might actually scratch the itch from the people that believe that Oswald was a lone gunman and that Kennedy was not killed by the CIA, the mob, Castro or the Russians – But it would also scratch the itch of a lot of the conspiracy theorists that look at the forensics and say that doesn't add up and also look at the lengths that uh, someone went to to have a cover up afterwards. And it would seem to scratch that itch as well. It would seem like this theory, the theory that Secret Service agent Hickey accidentally uh, uh, fired the bullet or maybe not even fired it, but his weapon discharge that that killed Kennedy, that that would uh, satiate a lot of people out there.
14: It really does sort of explain everything in a way. And just for the record, I'm speaking to you from Tanchpaho Parish, Louisiana right now. I live within about 15 miles of Covington, Louisiana, which is a place where Lee Harvey Oswald lived early in his life, lived with his mother. And just living in the greater New Orleans area like I do, I've been living here for 25 years, you get kind of used to running into, encountering people that experienced Lee Harvey Oswald back in the day. And there are landmarks around the greater New Orleans area of Lee Harvey Oswald and his weird and bizarre life and the more time I have spent here and I've encountered people who had face-to-face interactions with him or people that knew him the more it convinces me that he was this bizarre misfit with delusions of grandeur who imagined himself as being a revolutionary comparable to Che Guevara or to Fidel Castro and Imagine the frustration of the of the the disappointed revolutionary who can't quite get things off the ground who can't quite get the world to pay attention to him. This theory helps me understand that better living here you just kind of get this broader profile of Lee Harvey Oswald, the bizarre misfit. And then when you consider Um, What could have happened that day at Dealey Plaza, if you believe mortal error, is that the the misfit with delusions of grandeur attempted to assassinate a president, and it set in motion this wild chain of events that were sort of beyond everyone's control that might have included a Secret Service agent with a Mm. brand-new weapon, a weapon that absolutely nobody even knew what it was because it was so foreign and new, and that that agent – in trying to seat a bullet to return fire after the motorcade drove into this ambush, that weapon might have experienced um, a, a, a discharge that was unintentional that then struck the president, and then all manner of chaos erupts. If if you're ever interested in looking into it more, there's the, a series of famous images that capture this. Um, there's even a piece of film footage that captures it. The famous Bronson footage is a color film motion picture footage clip that captures the the motorcade from the other side of Dealey Plaza, the opposite side of where Abraham Zapruder was located. And that footage in that footage, you can clearly see agent Hickey has the weapon out and is brandishing the weapon in Dealey Plaza. Uh, There are several still photographs that depict agent Hickey wielding his AR 15, um, in the immediate aftermath of leaving Dealey Plaza as they travel down Elm before they turn onto the Stimmons Freeway a series of stills are taken one of which is the McIntyre photograph and the McIntyre photograph captures two T- two DPD mounted police officers on motorcycles in the foreground the two limousines of the presidential motorcade are in the distance and you can see everyone and you can clearly see Hickey brandishing the AR-15 and all of the other agents are looking at him and everyone looks Even though it's at a distance, it looks tense. And it almost looks like everyone's maybe even shouting at Hickey. Then when you add to that, there are these series of peculiar and puzzling photographs taken at Parkland Memorial Hospital, particularly one where maybe you're aware of the sequence of events that unfolds there, and that is that the presidential limousine pulls up, they take the president into the ER. Um, Minutes go by, and then eventually Agent Hickey himself is sent outside where the presidential limousine is there with all manner of crime scene evidence splattered across it. And Agent Hickey puts the roof up on the limo, gets a mop and a sponge, and be- begins washing all of this forensic evidence off of the limousine, which is something that you clearly wouldn't be doing if you were attempting to conduct mm. a proper investigation. So it's a con- completely. So the limousine is a completely contaminated crime scene where there's absolutely no useful evidence that could have been recovered from it because when they got to Parkland, everything was kind of washed off. And you add to that, there is a photo that shows Hickey himself just as he walked outside. Well, he had walked outside, put the roof up on the limo, and he's turning to go get something to wash the limo up. And he's sort of pushing his hair back, and you can see he has this very distraught look on his face. It almost looks like the man is in tears. Now, granted, he's been through a lot during the last few minutes, uh, but that piece of evidence, I think it takes on an entirely new life once you've read Mortal Error and you consider this theory. Because if that man had experienced a negligent discharge, that would have been no fault of his own, by the way. It would have been a a a problem with the weapon, a weapon defect. Uh, If that had happened and he had been holding the firearm, those other agents in the McIntyre photo, they would have been like, what were you doing? What happened? And he was, and he would have been arguing back. The gun just went off. And if then you get to the hospital and you're thinking, the president's going to die because of what just happened. And everybody thinks I did it and it was my fault. And I, I didn't do it. You would look, distraught you would you would look like the man that is in this famous photograph and it all it all sort of piles up and points into a direction that i think um encourages all of us it it admonishes all of us to take the mortal error theory a little bit more seriously Uh, uh, two final questions
3: here martin and you got to come back because there's a lot of other issues not necessarily related to this but just in general that i'd love to pick your brain on but One is, uh, one of the questions that I've been asking consistently over the course of the last four years is why has the government, under Democratic administrations, Republican administrations, with a wide variety of excuses, why has the government been so fastidious in fighting the release of these documents that are are over 60 years old and the various excuses they use covid national security they don't really seem to hold water with me and i'm wondering do you think that the government's desire to um avoid having the secret service blamed for killing jfk do you think that could be part of the reason why the government has fought so hard to keep so many of these documents secret
14: well, you know, it certainly does look suspicious, all of it, doesn't it? I I, I admit to having been sort of lured into that sort of um, uh, suspicious thinking myself. Um, the official line that the government is now presenting, and they presented it last week on the 15th when they released 13,000 new documents or released 13,000 changes in redaction, The the... The excuse that they're now presenting, which I do find a little bit compelling, and that excuse is, well, hey, these redactions had to remain in place as long as they did, because these redactions were protecting CIA and FBI agents who needed to remain nameless, and they were people who were still alive. That I can sort of understand. I can, ref- I can respect that to a certain degree. I could also see why the government, why it would benefit the government to protect or to to control information that might make the FBI um, not look great. The FBI was investigating Lee Harvey Oswald, and I believe that some of these redact- redactions are going to reveal that the extent to which they were watching him was far greater than we've previously considered. And so, yeah, there are two plausible cover stories at work there one being we got to protect the names of people who had to work in uh, clandestine and espionage services. So we have to protect those individuals. I can understand that. I can understand also an, a an interest in protecting the FBI from experiencing the embarrassment and having to explain the reasons why it did not take threats from people like Lee Harvey Oswald more seriously. But at the same time, these redactions and the fact that they just persisted for decade after decade, all they did was throw red meat to the conspiracy theorists, and I admit that I'm one of them because the the suspicious quality of these redactions certainly made me consider other possibilities. Absolutely.
3: Hey, we're going to have to end it there. Martin, great conversation. I'll look forward to the next time we get to speak. I'll look forward to that too, Frank. Thank Thanks you. for having me on. Thank you. You could check out. Martin's website, martinkamorgan.com, spelled exactly as it sounds, martinkamorgan.com. We'll take your calls uh, in just a moment, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano
20: But, baby,
2: it's cold outside. But, baby, it's cold outside.
20: Been hoping that you'd drop in.
2: I'll hold your hands. They're just like ice.
3: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Want to encourage you to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. What do we mean by that? Well, we have a Facebook group. And uh, you could join it. Just go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio morano. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio morano. Or just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. I have long ago come to peace with the fact that um, almost everyone in this group has a problem with something that we're doing, right? Too much politics, too little politics. Too much personal stories, too, too few personal stories. Too much aliens, not enough aliens. Too much mob talk, not enough mob talk. Whatever, okay? I think, I think that's great. I think that's great. But here's why I'm asking you to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. There are way too many people posting in this group about things that are not related to the show. For heaven's sake, we create 20-plus hours of brand-new content a week. All sorts of topics, all sorts of things that can be analyzed, dissected, debated. Why not focus on this stuff that we are doing? And I understand that some people are in the Facebook group who don't necessarily listen to this show. And I can forgive those people. Here are the people that I forg- I cannot forgive. There are these folks that say that um, again and again are on topic. Right, and then so I don't have to keep pre-approving them, I or keep approving them. I will pre-approve them so that they can post. I figure, okay, this is somebody that posts all the time, and they're always on topic. And then, lo and behold, these people start posting topics and subjects that are not relevant to the show. Um, for instance, you know, one of the people the other day, Joel said, oh, you know, Trump, take your NFTs and go away and give this party an opportunity to win. And uh, we didn't talk about the NFTs at all because the whole rest of the world was talking about them. And I'm just thinking, A2, Joel, A2, um, please, if you can, keep it topical. And then his response was, oh, i just like to see what ensues. Now, so think about that. Rather than post this on his own Facebook, He's essentially trying to hijack our group to control the conversation to talk not about what we spend 20 hours a week talking about, but about what he wants to talk about. So please, if you're new to the show or if you're not new to the show, join the Facebook group and post something topical. After all, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Marano. Well, I didn't think this day would ever come. I am almost all caught up with my email. I'm hesitant to say this because that is like me teasing the communication gods to bury me in an avalanche of email. But I am now all caught up on my professional email and I am only 18 emails away, thank you very much, really? from being caught up on my personal email, which is big, thank you. Uh, and I am anticipating that I am going to get through that personal email this morning. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, uh, we have no babysitter today, so I have to stay up a little later anyway to so make sure I can look after my son and everything. So, uh, because my wife is sick. But. I'm also going to wait for the sanitation workers that service our block to come so that I can give them their Christmas gift, their Christmas card. Now, after talking with Tommy, who called earlier, I now see I have to tip the recycling people as well for good karma. He's right. I won't sleep well about that. But interestingly, um, you know, by the way, you know who I was really looking forward to giving a small tip to? Uh, And small, not because she doesn't deserve a larger tip, just because, you know, my resources are rather limited at this point, is we have a wonderful newspaper delivery person named Donna. And I was up this morning. I was I found myself. I was awake at yesterday morning, technically at three thirty in the morning because it's tough to just bounce back into, you know, regular sleeping on the weekend. So I was up. I was uh Doing my thing, and I was waiting for the newspaper delivery person. And I must have gone in. I was outside. First I was doing the cardboard recycling, and then I was going, um, you know, just going to smoke a cigar on my front porch and wait for the newspaper person to come. Well, I must have gone in to go to the restroom or something, and she delivered the newspaper. So I text her. I said, um, you know, Donna, it's, it's Frank. Sorry I missed you this morning. We wanted to give you a Christmas card. Please drop me a line. Let me know whenever you're on our block next. This is what she writes me back. And I wish everybody had such an attitude. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. But put the envelope towards your, uh, by the way, I want to make clear. This was a very small gift. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate it. But put the envelope towards your son. I should be paying you because I learn a lot from your show. By the way, I agree with that. I wish every listener appreciated me as much as Donna does. You know, and a little tip for your local radio hosts around the holidays. I think that's a nice thing. Um and then she she says, uh, "Curtis had me laughing this morning how he talks about you. It's it's funny. Curtis was uh he was in rare form over the weekend. I'll talk about that a little later, but this whole idea of Christmas and, or Hanukkah, the holidays, and gift-giving around the holidays can be very stressful, right? Because the biggest – there's two big questions that you have to deal with when it comes to this whole thing. It's who do you get gifts for and then what do you get them? I came across an article on CNBC the other day asking the question, should you buy a gift for your boss and coworkers for the holidays hr experts weigh in and then they talk to all these hr experts that say different things the new york post had a similar thing i one of the morning newsletters that i subscribe to asked a similar question should you buy a gift for your boss and coworkers and i'm curious where you come down on this what do you think Should you let's start with your boss and then if you want to expand the conversation to your co-workers, go ahead and do so. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Should you get your boss a Christmas gift?
1: A question since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question.
3: It it is interesting uh, because I'm in. Kind of a unique position, right? One is I have really two bosses, right? You have John and Margot Katzamatis, which own who own our network, and then you have my direct boss, the president, Chad. Um, and it's it's, I really feel on the one hand like I should get John and Margot something because I was friends with them even before I worked here. Two, I also feel that I should get them something because they have given me the opportunity of a lifetime being able to have a job that you can make a living in, in radio. It's almost the equivalent today. It's almost as rare today as winning the lottery. So that's the gift that they've given me every day. And I feel kind of a moral obligation to get something. And they were kind enough to send me a beautiful uh, holiday Christmas basket, which I really appreciated. So I want to get something, but then you also keep in mind that John, He's a billionaire, right? And if he wants something, he would just buy it. So what can I get him that is appropriate and that he it's not something that he would just buy on his own? What I've done in the past, because I know John likes cigars like I do, is I just get him a nice box of cigars, right? But I hate to fall into that predictable trend. But I may do that. I may do that. Chad, um, I think last year I got him some cigars also. But – I'm not even really convinced he smokes cigars. He claims to smoke them, but I've never seen him smoke one. So I may not do that. But um, I'm curious what you do, right? Because I'm way, I'm reading the CNBC article, and it says, ideally, gift-giving should be a show of appreciation or to remind a colleague that you really enjoy working with them. Uh, Burgette White, the vice president of human resources at ADECO North America, which is a staffing firm, said it shouldn't be a costly or anxiety-inducing endeavor. CNBC article goes on to say, but timing is everything with workplace gift-giving. So I'm curious what you do in your own life. I usually do get the boss a gift, um, but it's rare up until the last couple of years that I've had a boss that's a billionaire. What do you do? I think I'm going the cigar route for John this year, and I don't know what I'm going to do for Chad. We'll see. Um, and then, you know, you have these three fel- folks that work on this show. And usually i like to get them a little something. But this year I don't think I'm going to because my resources are rather limited. And I buy pizza every week. I feel like that's an, like a weekly Christmas gift that keeps on, you know, giving. And then um, I I feel like by announcing that I'm not going to give them anything, hopefully that will mean they won't give me anything. And then that's one less thing that I will have to take home it's always kind of a stressful thing having to commute, take all the my computer and books and newspapers and whatever, mugs. So I'm curious how you come down on this whole situation. 800-848-9222. These are the three rules that uh, these HR experts suggest that you should follow when it comes to gift-giving at work. One, don't break the bank. Two, be thoughtful. Uh, while gift-giving should be work-appropriate, it should also be personal. So that's what some of these experts think. And then three, take your cues from coworkers. Interesting. Interesting. Where do you come down on this? 800 848 22 Joe and Ron Concomo, do you get the boss a Christmas gift? Yes, I do.
15: Uh, you know, out of respect, you know, even my wife, they did a pool at her job. And you know I have... Um, I do newspapers at night on top of my other job, and I noticed this year, Frank. And you should tip your carrier, um, even if she doesn't want it, because we're out. Seven I'm trying. I'm eight.
3: trying. I, I said, please text me when you're you're on the block again. And she said, uh, she said, uh, no, I won't. Now I am going to find some other alternative means now of getting her address, but it's very difficult. I'm just text her and say you're going to leave an envelope in your mailbox
15: for it, You know, because, you know, I noticed this year, Frank, a lot of people are really tight. And it's, you know, I understand. But, you know, we're out in all sorts of weather, like the postman, the garbage guys. And, you know, you, you show a little appreciation. Believe it. We, we appreciate it. And like I said, you know, when it comes to your bosses, you got to do a little something. Even if, like, John Katsimatidis, I saw in the newspaper what his net worth is. And I was like, even if you get him you know, a bottle of wine or something, you know, just to say thank you, it goes a long way, Frank. And if I don't talk to you, Frank, uh, to you and your whole family, a very Merry Christmas and a happy and healthy, all right?
3: Thanks, Joe. You, too, to your family as well. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve.
20: It's Christmas time in the city. You know, Joe from Lake Ronkakamo, you should have him on your voicemail, really. And um, before I get to the meat and potatoes here, I, I was listening to Curse the other day, but when he starts talking about you, I-, I-, I have to dump it, you know? I could see why his cousins and all the kids in the neighborhoods ch- chased him out of Brooklyn. Yeah, no, I ended can up- as well.
3: I can as well. It makes sense.
20: But but the thing is, the, the the McDonald's he worked for in the Bronx is not in the South Bronx, unless you want to call the North
3: All right. the South. We, we can move on. We don't need to spend a lot of time on which McDonald's Curtis worked at. Who cares? All
20: right. Okay. Wow. He's getting a little, a little tough there with, with Steve Areno. All right. Okay. Um, gift given, right? I, I would think it depends on the person. I think if a person really is a little short on money or something, maybe give them a cash gift or something. It doesn't have to be perfectly tied into anything. There are some people I give gifts to, and some people I give the same gift to them every year, nothing. So it's, I think it's a – truthfully, it's a personal thing, but try to fit the gift to the person. And, and I think like a guy like you, you have like billionaire friends and millionaire friends, you should make have a field day getting gifts from these
3: people, No. Yeah, well, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight 848 All right, so that's that. What do you do in terms of uh, getting gifts for coworkers and or uh, people at work, right? Um, well, coworkers and or your boss. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. 9222 Norman is in Brooklyn. Hello, Norman.
16: Hey, Frank. Yeah, Frank, don't get the boss a gift. It's ingratiating. He doesn't need your gift. I mean, I would, you know, thank you, uh, you know, I mean, if, if you're in a situation, I don't know, get him a drink or something like that. But I, I wouldn't go out and get him a gift. It's just, it's, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't need your cigars. Besides, you know, he he goes all over the world. He can probably get those Cuban ones, which are better than anything coming out of Nicaragua that you can buy here anyway. So, well, I'm
3: not saying just my situation, but just in general for people. Your advice for people no, in I, general? No, I would not. I would
16: not get. I would not get the boss a gift. I would get your coworkers that you like a gift. And uh, I say the I agree with, with that. Uh, I, the,
3: the danger with that, Norman, is that let, yeah. look. So let's say there's two coworkers that you like, and yes. you have other coworkers that think that they're close friends. Um, how uh, do you, how, okay. does it...
16: all right, well, you got to think this out, but, but I, I would get, I would, I, I agree with Joe, we Conkama, on Konkuma, you know, you, I would tip the male person and, uh, I don't know, garbage people. That's, I don't know, here in Brooklyn, I, I don't know who my garbage people are. I wouldn't tip them. They, uh, they frighten me a little bit. I don't <laughs> well, mess with them.
3: Well, no, I, I, I have a lot of respect for, thank you for the sanitation folks. You got to get, you got to, got to give them a little something, got to do it. But it's interesting it, to your point, Norman, about getting coworkers a gift but not the boss. I don't agree with that. Um, well, maybe I don't know. Look, I think people should do whatever's right for them. I'll tell you, you know, whenever you're in the mode of picking and choosing which coworkers that you give a gift to, you you end up hurting someone's feelings because. You're in a situation where you have someone who may think you're a very close friend, or at least a workplace friend, and then they're not in the gift loop or the invite loop, right? Um, we went through that. I've seen this countless times, countless times. I used to, I think I stopped this, but I used to on Valentine's Day get a gift for all the ladies that worked in the office. and Because I didn't want, you know, just to get the two or three that I'm – Close friends with gifts and that everyone else feels, oh, so-and-so got nice chocolates from Frank and I didn't get anything. So I ended up getting everybody and then I stopped because it was just – it was driving me to bankruptcy. So I I think I stopped that, right? Uh, I I don't remember what I did last year. But, I see, working nocturnal hours, you get away with a lot more of these things. You know, I'm reminded of my departed colleague, Bernard McGurk. His son got married. you know who was invited to his son's wedding from work here. Nobody, nobody, not a single person that works here was invited. And some people that he worked with for a long time remarked to me, well, don't you think that's odd? You know, I know Bernie all this time. I I have pretty good friends with Bernie. Uh, Don't you think it's an odd that I wouldn't get an invite? And so Bernie took the approach. Nobody gets anything. Um, In the case of his partner, Sid Rosenberg, his his son had an occasion recently, and he had no problem picking and choosing. Some coworkers were invited, some coworkers were not invited, but he would whisper to them, he would say, Hey, I want you to know not a lot of people are invited to this. He made it very clear, it's like a, a secret society, right? And you should not, you know, it's like fight club. Do not talk about Gabe's bar mitzvah. First rule of Gabe's bar mitzvah, do not talk about Gabe's bar mitzvah. So I think everybody knew kind of keep this on the QT. It's tough to do that with a Christmas gift because let's say you get them something really cool, like a, a slinky or something, right? Then you, how do you, how do you, what are you going to say? You're going to lie about where you got that. You can't do that, right? So I think the, the whole idea of coworkers is tricky, but I think boss, I think if you have a boss that you're friends with, there's nothing wrong with getting a Christmas gift. I, I don't. Curious what you do. 800 848 Jerry is in New Jersey. Hello, Jerry.
17: Hey, Frank. How are you, sir?
3: I'm well, thanks.
17: I'm, I'm taking you off the speaker. Um,
3: I appreciate that. I, 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 I only you know wish I Kenneth had instructed you to do that earlier. Come on, Kenneth. No, no.
17: Listen, I, I was taking you off the speaker of my phone, not the speaker on the radio.
3: No, I, I understand. I, I, I wish he had given you the speaker phone instruction earlier.
4: Come on, Kenny.
17: Okay. Well, anyway, here's what you do with uh, Mr. John.
3: Right. And I don't want to make this unique yeah, you, to me, yeah. Jerry. I'm, oh, I'd like to talk about everybody, no, no. every person. This, and is what I,
17: this is what I do to my uh, uh, uppers. I bring them something of a memory from 30, 40 years ago. You know, I'll buy um, a silly soap on a rope or... The old spice in that, in that tooth thing, something s- silly that brings back memories that's more important than any monetary thing, and they seem to appreciate
3: it. I, I like that. okay, kind of a nostalgic throwback gift. but um, and, and, and thank you, Jerry. So the question after you have dealt with, should you get the boss a Christmas gift? Is then an interesting one as well. What do you get, right? And I feel like Jerry's jumping ahead to question two. It sounds like in his view, he's already answered question one. Fair enough, makes sense. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. It's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. By the way, you could find me on Twitter at Frank M O R A N O. You know, just go back to the last conversation. I'm hesitant to mention this because anytime you say the word Trump, it just it opens the floodgates in terms of radio. But that everyone was making fun of Donald Trump for selling those NFT trading cards he sold all of them 45,000 cards for $99 each in a day in a day and it's funny I was thinking about buying one as an investment and I said all right well it's $99 and I don't even technically I don't even really understand what an NFT is maybe I'll wait a day or two uh, because I was thinking it would be a good investment and then I could resell it. Well, sure enough, they all sold out in a day and they're now selling for hundreds of dollars. So depending, Trump had an agreement with a, an NFT company and, um, you know, it, a licensing agreement with them. So I don't really know how much of the uh, how much he cleared personally. But the conservative estimate is he made at least a million dollars. Some estimates have him making over four million dollars. So he made somewhere between a million dollars and four plus million dollars in one day. In one day, just by selling these NFT digital trading cards. Now, I don't see anything wrong with that. I mean, I guess that people were upset about he kind of faked them out. They thought it was going to be a big announcement about running for uh, who his running mate was going to be or something. But Trump's whole life has been making money off of branding, Trump the game, Trump ice, Trump Stakes, Trump ties. That's how he makes a living. And if you could make a million dollars by licensing your name and image to in one day, wouldn't you do it? I would. I would. So I was talking about that yesterday with my wife and she said, can you imagine being so wealthy and having such a, you know, enthusiastic following that you could sell just images of yourself as an NFT trading card. I said, yes, I can imagine that. And I think I should be that famous. So I am asking for your help, right? Please help me grow my social media following so that one day I can sell $99 NFT trading cards of myself. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Frank Morano. Follow me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And uh, help me be in this position one day. It's funny. I don't know if he's going to be upset with me sharing this. But I asked uh, Sid Rosenberg, who, co- who hosts the morning show in uh, WABC in New York. I said, how soon until the Sid Rosenberg NFT trading card is released? And he says, it's funny that you should ask that March 1st. So I would actually get a – I'm not paying $99 for a Sid – NFT trading card, but I would buy one if it's $20 or something. It's, uh, that's good. All right, 808-4892-22 Rich in North Carolina. Hello, Rich. Good morning,
12: Frank. A great big fan of yours, of uh, the website, and of obviously of you and the station. Thank you. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for calling. Listen, I'd like to comment on the fact of giving a boss, first of all, I think it's very classy that you give the garbage man I shouldn't say garbage men, sanitation men. A tip. I think that's a class act, and that must have been instilled in you from your parents, giving you good ethics and and just good morals. Because a lot of that's gone away today. You won't find a lot of people giving, you know, sanitation men. Tips like that, well, and you and technically,
3: really, as the prior caller said, you're not supposed to they're it's not they're not allowed to accept tips, so I am participating in a violation of the law here, right, so uh so I guess that's part of the reason why people don't do that
12: well, I guess if you yeah you're encompassed in the city there, so you you that I guess that does fall through, but Back in the day when I lived on Long Island, it was a custom that I did that. And believe it or not, it comes back in spades when you need a favor. Oh, yeah, so
19: absolutely. It,
12: it it really is. And it's a class act that you've – newspaper delivery person, gave, you know, gave you that gesture for Carmine, and that, that's a class act. But as far as giving a gift to your boss, uh, it all uh, – to me, it all depends on the cohesiveness of your relationship with your boss. Mm, I mean mm. – If you have a boss that, you know, is involved with hundreds of people or a big crew of people, I would venture to say not. But if you have, like, a tight-knit, like I had, like, 12 people. I worked in the lab. I was a chemist. And if you have, like, 12 people that's encompassed in your group or your office, I don't think it's a bad idea to give a little something back. You know, because, like I said, it comes back to you in spades. If you're classy to somebody and charitable and you feel that you want to do it, yeah, you know, Rich, it's,
3: it, it's a great point. Great point all uh, on all. Thank you for calling in. Merry Christmas. You know, it's funny. My mom was a manager for many years and she was very generous with her team and her staff and very appreciative of all their efforts. She would get them gifts all year round. Right. Because just that's how my mom is. Um, And they would usually get her something, and I think she really appreciated whatever they would give her, and especially if it was something thoughtful. Like one year, I think they got her trading cards emblazoned with her image on them, and she really appreciated that. So uh, I think there are some people – I had one boss. I got him a gift. It doesn't matter who it was or what the gift was, but I got him one gift that I thought he would really enjoy. And I see a month or two later, he's throwing it out. And I fished it out of the garbage because I thought it was cool. And uh, I I have it at home now. But uh, I was really – I don't want to say I was hurt because I kind of got over it. But I was really disappointed to see that this gift that I thought he was going to get such a big kick out of, he was throwing away. Now, um, right in the office, by the way. Didn't even take it home to throw (laughs) it away. Um, Now, my mom was the exact opposite. The gifts that she'd get from her staff, she would really uh, treasure, really enjoy it's funny. My my neighbor across the street is a uh, principal of a school, <laughs> and I hear him telling another one of our neighbors because our neighborhood it's 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 like Cheers. It's an outdoor Cheers. You know, everyone's always drinking. They're always outside. They're always together. They're always convivial. You know, and well, not always. Most of the time, convivial. And I'm listening to him tell my other neighbor a story. And he says, if he says, if I get one more GD mug from a student, I am going to break it over that student's head. And I understand where he's coming from. I mean, I don't don't think he's obviously not being serious, but he just had my house is overrun with mugs. I can't imagine. Let's say he gets only five mugs a year. His house has got to be, forget about it, overflowing with mugs. So he, I guess, would appreciate certain gifts, but not necessarily a mug. So it all depends on, to go back to um, the prior caller's point, not only who you get the gift for, but what you get them, right? If you're going to get the boss a necktie, is that something that they would really enjoy, or would they throw it on the pile? Of neckties that they never wear. I don't know. eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 848 Staying in the Carolinas, let me say hello to Russell. Hello, Russell.
11: Hey, Frank. Yeah, look, my, my wife, like her job, she reports directly to the CFO. And they have a great relationship, the two of them. But there's no, you know, we've never gone over and hung out at his house. And he's never come hung out at our house or anything like that. It's very professional. And and I think that's kind of how it should go with gifts. So like, look, I don't want your gift. Don't give me your, you know, because in the end, when it comes time for me to fire you, I don't want to look at the gift you gave me. Plus the gift is probably some crap I don't want anyway.
3: Well, it's funny that you say that. That is always why I would get the boss a gift because I (laughs) want, I'm not joking. I would always get my bosses, um, one or two of them that that I've had, usually, I would always get them a gift because that's exactly what I want them thinking. I want them looking at the business card holder that I got them or the money clip or the name desk plate that I got them and look staring at that when they make the decision, am I firing Frank Morano or not? That's exactly what I want.
11: Well, that's funny, Frank, because cause that's kind of like I mean, trust me, her company they've had some really schmuck jerk offs that like, and and they would pull that, they would pull that card, and it's like, well, and and, and it does play, it does play because it's like, a, but the 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 finance people are they're a different breed, and 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 I love it, but but it's like, well, come on, man. I mean, you gotta you gotta give somebody a gift. Don't give me a gift. I mean, 'cause I I, I actually did work for a guy, and he's a New York guy, and he was always like, ah, oh, yeah. He, he would give me some money and everything else, and I'm like, but it, he he, it was almost out of guilt. And it was like, yeah, get out of here, man. I don't I don't need you a gift. But my brother up in Vermont, man, he he's a UPS guy, and oh, the New Yorkers, man, they take care of him, baby.
3: So, so w- Russell, you when you had people yeah. working for you, would you give them anything for Christmas?
11: Oh, yeah, absolutely. What would you absolutely. give them? Um, I mean, it depends. I, I would give them, I would just give them cash. Cash. Because, See, that's know, good. Like, I like cash that. Cash speaks volumes, Am- I think. and And it's like, you want to say I appreciate you to me? That's the best way to do it.
3: Yeah, well, well said, Russell. Uh thank you. You know, it's funny. I remember when I was um when I was an intern on the Curtis and Kuby show, Kuby was very very generous around the holidays. He would give cash gifts to the interns to um some of the other people that worked on the show, the engineer, the call screener. And Curtis was generous in other ways, not any of which were monetarily or materially generous. Not not at all. And I remember one Christmas, this is many years ago, about 18 years ago, and um, with one fellow that worked on the show, and he was really hoping, I think, to get a cash gift from both Kubi and from Curtis. And Kubi gave him a cash gift, and he got for Curtis a Yankees shirt, right? And he he comes into Curtis's office, and he gives him a Yankees shirt, and Curtis says, oh, thank you very much. And just like puts it on a pile and like <laughs> barely reacted at all. And I could see as almost this fellow was waiting there saying, All right, am I going to get anything? And he was almost expecting something in return because he had gotten something from Kobe. And sure enough, he didn't get anything <laughs> from Curtis. But anybody that's known Curtis for more than eight seconds could have told him, you know, not to hold his breath. So he uh, he ended up leaving uh, with, you know, kind of disappointed. And I always thought, Oh, you know, that's, I feel bad for that guy. But, You kind of got to know your your audience, and you shouldn't really get someone a gift, which I think this guy was trying to do, with the expectation that you're going to get something in return. If that makes sense. All right, uh, we have a first timer. We're sorry. Don is in Maryland, WCBM land. Hello, Don. Hello. Hello.
18: Uh, I was just calling in response to buying gifts. Uh, The ethics that I grew up with is. Bosses, No, Um, you don't buy gifts for bosses, but they can buy gifts for you if they so choose. Uh, Co-workers, unless they are a very close friend, my personal opinion, no. Yeah, I like that. Um, But uh, you're in a weird situation. Your boss was or is a very good friend. If you buy a gift, it has to be based on the friendship, not the boss. Yeah, and then
3: I get that in my case,
18: I um, if I buy any gifts, it's basically for the uh, grandkids and family and very close friends. Other than that, everyone's off the list.
3: Yeah, I like that, Don. I like that, and you've actually convinced me. Listening to you kind of think this through, I've now decided I am going to get John and Margo something, and but I'm not getting Chad anything because, you know. I wouldn't get Chad anything if I didn't work here. But I would get John something if I didn't work here. So that's that's kind of what I'm going to do. That's my that's my solution. All right, more on this um, or anything else you want to comment on in a bit. But we're going to try and give away $1,000 in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. And if you think you have what it takes, be the seventh caller right now uh, to that number. And if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then you will be the proud recipient of $1,000. That's our gift to you that we give to the quick witted. 800 848 9222, dollars minutes straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. your heart If your world is feeling small
2: And there's no one on your phone You feel close enough to call Christmas will crush your soul Like that laid back rock and roll
1: But your body's getting It's much
3: too tired to be so bold This is LCD Sound System. Christmas will break your heart. Some have said this is a depressing Christmas song, but I guess it's all in the eye of the beholder. Am I right? Something which is... Occasionally depressing is the answers that we get as part of
1: the other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win one thousand dollars. Here's your host. Frank
3: Murano. So I'll tell you a true story and I hope I don't get in trouble for, for this. But we, my wife and I were friends with a couple. I was really friends with the guy. But, you know, we tried to become couple friends. He was married. Uh, I was a fellow named, uh, it doesn't matter his name. Well, okay, his name was Jaden. Okay. His wife is named Bethany. So we go over to their house to dinner a couple times. But we haven't really seen much of them the last year and a half or so. They or he moved. I see him recently. at a work thing. Fine. My wife asks me, hey, did Jaden and Bethany break up? Because I follow the wife, Bethany, on Instagram, and she's got a different last name on there. It's her maiden name, and she never mentions her husband in any of her posts. I said, I don't know. I I don't know how to gently bring bring that up either with the husband, who I don't see that often. Hey, did you you and your wife get divorced? Kind of an odd. The last time I asked that to somebody, I was a little embarrassed. But today's recipient, today's contestant on the $1,000 Minute is none other than Bethany on Long Island. Bethany, are you or have you ever been married to someone named Jaden?
0: Um, my name's Stephanie, ah. uh, but no, I've never been married to anyone named Jason. There you go.
3: A, <laughs> I've a, never been married. A Kenneth special. All right. Well then, uh, that's, um, much to the disappointment of, uh, all the fellas out there, but something to always, you know, look forward to possibly in the future, right? Uh, hopefully. <laughs> are you, uh, are you looking to get married, Stephanie? That's my mom's name, by the way.
0: Um, I, I have a boyfriend now, so, I mean, we'll see. I mean, there's no pressure, but.
3: Hopefully. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds like there's some pressure there. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, you are you. Have you heard this contest before? You know how it works. Uh, n- not once. Oh, okay. No. Good. Okay. Great. All right. So, by the way, how did you stumble upon our show today, Stephanie?
0: Um, I was just clicking through the radio. I'm on my way to work, and I don't know. Something told me. I swear. I don't know if I'm psychic, but I was like, I'm going to win something today. Love it. And then I swear. And then I was clicking through the radio, and then I heard a thousand dollar. And I swear, a thousand came to my head before. Um, and then I heard this and I called them and it's like, you're the seventh caller.
3: Wonderful. That's outstanding, Stephanie. Okay, good. So people know that this is not uh, rigged or anything like that. Great. What kind of work do you do, by (laughs) the way, that finds you awake this early in the morning?
0: Um, I have a cleaning company. So I do, um, yeah, I do commercial, like, office buildings and stuff
3: before they open. You know, I've noticed, it seems that we have ants in our house. Is there anything you could do for us?
0: Um, it really, at this time of year, that's when they all come in. Uh. Ah. I, yeah, so okay. you got to just it, – it it stinks. You eat one thing, you leave one apple on the counter, and you get a whole bunch.
3: Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I love my Aunt Camille, but, you know, I would prefer her not to be over as often as she is. All right, uh, so, Stephanie, the way this works is um, I'm going to ask you 10 – relatively easy trivia questions at least eight of them are relatively easy one or two are somewhat tricky depending on what you have knowledge of and if you get a question you're gonna have 60 seconds to run through all these if you um if you get a question right we're just going to move on to the next one so that we can run through all of these quickly If you get a question wrong you'll hear an incorrect buzzer and you will you know be incorrect and then you know the game will be over but uh the key is just if uh Don't overthink these answers, especially early on. It may seem like some of these responses are too easy. It is the first one that comes to mind. Okay, it's not. You know, if we ask you who's buried in Grant's tomb, the answer is Grant. You know, don't don't overthink it. Don't think it's Hugh Grant instead of you know Ulysses S. Grant or something like that. Just the key is uh, don't overthink them. If you think you know the answer, chances are you do. Okay. Okay. Oh, I'm sweating. Okay. All right. Don't, no, no. And that's the other thing. Don't be nervous. Uh, we had a guy okay. uh, call in who didn't know how many continents there were. Of course, he did know. Another fellow didn't know how many letters in the alphabet. Of course, he did know. But they were both nervous at the time. So it was just the pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you're at the plus side. A lot of the audience thinks your name is Bethany anyway. So you got, nobody's going to b- embarrass you when you come to clean their office or anything. All right. You ready to go? <laughs> yes. Okay. I'm ready. Where does Santa Claus live? Uh, The North Pole. What Jewish holiday began last night, Sunday night? Uh, Hanukkah. How many nights is Hanukkah? I think seven. We we will accept that. Or eight. Yeah, no, okay, Okay. it's either seven or eight, both acceptable. Where was baby Jesus born? Um, In Jerusalem. Ah, no, unfortunately. Bethlehem, he was born in Bethlehem. Oh shoot! Okay. Yeah. Had your name actually been Bethany, you might have been getting all these Bethlehem references your whole life. But uh, as my mom will tell you, as a Stephanie, you don't get that. If there's ever a question about Bethlehem, you get that. Uh, Stephanie, though, hang on. Even though you are not a regular listener to our show, we're going to give you a consolation prize. Okay? Hang on. Give Kenneth okay. your address. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Stephanie. And hope, listen again. Listen more. All right. Thank you. Um, and uh, Kenneth, when you take that down, that is Stephanie, not. Bethany, by the way, speaking of Kenneth, I was, who is not um, Kevin, right? What what is it that Bill, uh, that Bob Brown calls him, calls him Kevin, right? Yeah. So I was listening to (laughs) Curtis Lewa uh, over the weekend, and it's always a mistake, right? Because Curtis is like a radio bag of Pringles. In two senses. One, it's like junk food. You're, you're not really going to be <laughs> nourished by listening to Curtis. Really? But But it does feel good at the time. But you're not getting anything out of it. It's junk food. It's empty I'm calories. I'm a
15: person of no consequence.
3: So um, I'm listening to Curtis. And the other thing is you can't really listen for just one minute. Once you start listening to Curtis, you're kind of locked in. At least I am. So I'm listening Sunday morning. As I'm uh, going through all the cardboard recycling and everything. And first of all, this is the funniest show that I've ever heard. If you did not listen to the podcast of uh, Curtis's show or the live show of it, I have to tell you, it was, I was literally laughing out loud. I here I am at 4.30, 4.40 in the morning, freezing cold, chopping up cardboard boxes because our house gets more cardboard boxes than any house In the continental United States. I don't know why. But that's the case. So it takes me a long time. To chop up all these boxes. And fold them up for the recycling. This show is hysterical. I mean. they Honestly. I'm not joking about this. They should give Curtis an award or something. Because. This shtick between he and Avery. It's hilarious. I told Curtis. You know. After. um, Well. Let me let you hear a portion of it. Keep in mind. These two, Curtis and his telephone talent coordinator, Avery, they must spend their whole week just listening to this show and trying to take the things that I'm saying out of context because it's remarkable that they spend this amount of time on this. And it is – I know we have a lot of people listening you know, elsewhere, but it is staggering the amount of time that they spend on misinterpreting intentionally. What's on our show? The other thing is Avery comes in here, and he doesn't say a word. He he sits there just like a like a, a log. He's on there with Curtis. He has this razor-sharp whip, this great sense of humor. I don't know Avery's deal. I don't know where he came from. I don't know uh, where Curtis found him. But when he's on with Curtis, he's hysterical. When he's here with us, when he sits in for Kenneth, he is about as boring as can be. And, you know, he's an even worse call screener than Kenneth is. This is uh, a little bit of Curtis and Avery on Sunday morning.
15: And then he's possessed, he's obsessed with this thing about his own masculinity, which I think he bounces off some of the c- callers. Well, and this coming from, I, you know, I, I did the research and, like, calculated the minutes. He spends exactly 23.7% of his show <laughs> telling <laughs> Kenneth how good he looks. Uh, <laughs> Tell him kid of how handsome he is. (laughs) reminding him that he's a model. Tell him kid of how he inspires him. And he wants to get on. He wants to get on. I can't believe this. Wow. Man, let him
3: him go. Let him be himself. First of all, these two legitimately are hysterical. These two (laughs) should have a TV show or something, right? Because, um, I mean, as long as the subject of the TV show is only me, This would be, I think, the most uh, successful TV show, the most successful media enterprise either of them have ever been embarked on. Two things. One, um, I actually – look, I did not know – not that I thought he was ugly, but I did not know Kenneth was handsome until I was told so by Sid Rosenberg. Sid denounced Kenneth for being handsome and much younger than him. So I, I'm not one of these guys that can unless you're like a Paul Newman or a Ryan Reynolds, I really can't tell that a guy is handsome or not. I, I knew he wasn't ugly, but I don't think he's any more handsome than, you know, Alex Barnard or, you know, any of the other people that work here. But um but I he really didn't know he was handsome until Sid said so and Kenneth made a point of mentioning that he was a model. So it, it was I was told that Kenneth was handsome, and I don't know where Avery does his research, but that twenty three percent number, I think is high. I think at most it's two and a half percent, at most maybe three percent. But uh, I, I look. Avery says he's done a, an analytical data crunch. Okay, I'll take him at his word. But I'm listening to this whole hour, and I'd say about seventy percent of their hour is alluding to me being. Being gay, right? And or, or intimating that I'm a homosexual, uh, or something along those lines. And uh, literally, I mean, you could listen to the hour and uh, and you're, you're in the yourself. closet, you're still yeah, in the closet, exactly. And uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, but they, these two are so good. I'm not joking. I listened to this hour and I thought to myself, but wow, maybe I am gay. And I said to Curtis when I saw him last night. I said, you actually had me thinking, and I have an unblemished record of heterosexuality. I, you had me thinking that maybe I am gay. So uh, they are very convincing. None of what they say is true at all, even when they have a way of taking my own words and distorting the things that I'm saying. But um, the one thing that I don't understand with Curtis is he's on this, um, this kick that that I am not I'm not afraid of my father or I don't respect my father. I I've heard my father referenced more on the Curtis Lewa show than on, than on this show, quite frankly. But no, I'm quite fond of uh, of my dad. I look up to my dad, and obviously, you know, we named our son for my dad, so obviously, he's got a pretty high place in my world, right? So um, if you didn't listen to that, I would suggest that you give it a listen because it was very, very engaging. Two quick things. Oh, I don't know that we have time here. We've got to do 15 seconds of fame. Well, I, all right. We'll save that for tomorrow. We'll save that for tomorrow. Something good coming up tomorrow around this time. 15 seconds of fame in just a minute. There are two open lines, 800 848 This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other
4: Side of Midnight. midnight.
3: Side of midnight. Uh, we are going to do fifteen seconds of fame momentarily. You know, I don't know. If I've said this before. I don't know what goes on in the uh, refrigerator here. You know, we have normal quantities of everything, except when it comes to milk. There are there are just st- stacks and stacks of milk, and all sorts of different milks. There's whole milk. There's half and half. There's uh, oat milk, almond milk. There's milks upon milk. Israel doesn't have as much milk and honey as we do in the kitchen. So um, I'm wondering this, okay? And I feel like this is okay to mention because by talking about it on the radio, immediately becomes above board. Now, some may disagree. For instance, my wife was just listening about how uh, we were wondering if our friends were had become divorced. And she says, um, you know, oh my goodness, you shouldn't be saying this. You have no shame. People may know him. And I said to her, Well, yeah, that's the idea. Now I won't have to ask him. Word will just get back to him that I was talking about this on the radio. Now I'll just – I'll hear through the grapevine rather than have to confront him. But anyway, we are down to our last container of milk at home. And, you know, I have a one-year-old that requires milk. Now I could go out and get some or I'm wondering – uh, would a gal- a half a gallon of milk, a quart of milk, be missed if I took it home? I don't think it would. Matt, what do you think? Do you think I could take a, a, a thing of milk home? Why not? As long as it's still good. Well, well no, I think it is still good. So then take it. Who's going to stop you? Well, I know, but it's not my milk. Is it stealing if I take milk that's meant to be communal for everybody? Well, if there's a lot of milk. I, that's what I'm thinking. There's a milk surplus. <laughs> That it's going to go bad, and then it's going to get thrown out. It's true. So you might as well just take it. I might as well. All right, without further ado, it's time for... The
1: Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds. We have tennis back, so these
3: names are just advisory. Pete on Long Island. Since
15: a moron,
3: since Ralph in New Jersey. Okay, Uh, comes uh, January
8: uh of next year. The Republicans should dissolve the January 6th. Uh, you know, miss you guys, okay, because it doesn't make any sense now. And this need to
3: seriously look into uh, banning. Mike in Parts Unknown. Good morning, Frank. Funny, I'm laughing my butt off. Real quick,
15: I spoke to Joe Piscopo last night, the second time I mentioned your name, talking about the trip to Italy. I've never been. Uh, dad's from Messina. My mother, rest herself, from Naples. And you know what? Avery and Curtis. Avery, I call them J-
3: Gary and Inwood. The best
19: My son was my son was a student at 166 in the nineties when Jack Regan was the principal. Jack would get up on the tables and fling half cartons of milk around to get his message through. But the mask. The, this this principal having problems with hypochondriacal parents who want masks for everybody. All
3: right, thank you, Russ. Well, everybody else we didn't get to call back tomorrow. We'll have more time. Until tomorrow, Frank Morano. Good day.